pushed. A word is going to be pushed because it finally really pushes what's going on to the forefront. It pushes the story forward, everything that happened in this episode. Um, so push is going to be my word. Um, if you were paying attention to, to each of the storylines and everything gets pushed to the forefront of what's going on in each area and the urgency is upped in this episode. Um, even though it wasn't a big bunch of battle scenes and things like that, uh, the stakes get pushed right to the forefront and a level of understanding you get pushed to the forefront. Yeah, well, actually, my, my word was going to be characters. Um, I feel like this episode managed to do, like you guys already mentioned, uh, it gave us some story progression, uh, but it also helps us get to know the characters better. We got to know Isildur quite a bit better. Uh, we got to see that he's, you know, a, a troubled young man. Uh, we got to see his sister a little bit more, Arian. We got to see some dynamics between her and her brother, and then obviously her and Kamen. Uh, we got to know Miriel a little bit better. In I think in the previous episode, we were all of us wondering what, you know, I mean, book readers obviously know, but uh, within the context of the show, which side is she on? And in this episode, we finally get a little more insight in her into her. Uh, the only character whom I feel didn't really get any decent progression was Galadriel. I mean, she keeps making the same mistakes. She doesn't seem to be learning anything from them. She just keeps having these outbursts. Uh, so, yeah, I'm hoping we get to see some growth with her character pretty soon. Certainly a lot of room to grow for her. She is definitely not yet the wise, serene elf we know in the Third Age who's insightful. She seems to be totally oblivious to reading the room and understanding people's you know, body language and stuff like that. But I think that will change over the course of the series. Um, and I'm also seeing some stuff in the chat that I think people, some people couldn't hear me. So if that's still an issue, let us know. Um, but I, I think we can all hear each other. So if that's an issue, let us know in the chat. Um, Strider, how about you? Cool. And I mean, I guess we'll, we'll talk about the Palantir room, which is which was <laughs> such a great scene. Um, but yeah, also what guys before me said, um, the we are seeing hints of what's going to happen. The plot started moving forward. So it's not just set up. I mean, it's still kind of set up, but like we are moving. We feel that the, the plot is moving forward and we see what, what things are that, that are going to happen. And also we got some new hints regarding some of the characters, specifically their stuff around Hellbrand. And of course... Uh, we learned new things about Adar. So yeah, I, I, setup is still kind of happening, but we started moving forward and there's like hints of history, but also hints of what's coming next. So yeah, that's my word. Barking, my word you? is also one of the main themes of Tolkien. It's hope. Uh, all throughout the episode, there are just these little droplets and at sometimes like faucet, just hope is raining down upon the different scenes that we're in. So as a watcher, very hopeful in all these different storylines as they continue to build. And then sort of as a, a lore junkie nerd who really likes, you know, Easter eggs and things, the hope that I felt all throughout the episode as there was these Easter eggs of different things in the background or on the side or on a picture or maybe a weapon in the background, uh, just finished the episode filled with hope that the entire rest of the season is also picking up as well. Uh, yes. So I think hope is a pretty good way to put it. Um, like we, we can see the motivations of characters starting to come to the forefront a bit. And 
the scene with uh, the tree and uh, Muriel trying to maybe change the course of um, of Numenor and to perhaps like it kind of allows her to maybe also hope that Numenor will you know manage and that maybe this is that they uh, maybe dodged the bullet there because they changed their initial approach to the whole Galadriel situation. So I think that uh, yeah, saying hope is. I think that's a pretty good uh, word choice as well. Well, now is the time when we would usually get into the episode proper, but uh, I think I want to flip things around a little bit. Usually at the end of these discussions, we have some rapid fire questions and there's one that I've done every week that I have fun with. And I want to <laughs> bring that up front uh, and, and give it right to new better, do better. Uh, it's a question we always ask and I'm going to find an excuse to ask it every time. And that is a little segment called who is your daddy and what does he do? And this week it's going to be the Gilgalad edition. Uh, because one does not have new better do better on your stream and not ask him about Gil Gallad's parentage, <laughs> right? So um, is he the son of Fingon as he appears in the published Cimmerillion or the son of Aradreth as Tolkien later intended, or will the show never tell us one way or the other? We haven't got a lot of Gil Gallad, but I I'm wondering if you have an opinion based on what you've seen about which direction the show is going. Um, based upon what I'm seeing, I'm always I'm gonna say he's the son of Fingon. They they just went with the regular Silmarillion story before it was retconned. Uh, a couple of things lead me to believe that. Um, the color of his hair, for one. Um, if he was Ordred's son, his hair would more likely have been uh, blonde like the Galadriels, because if they would have had. Uh, Ordreth as the son of e either way, if they would have had him as the son of Finarfin, or if they would have had him as the son of Ang uh, Angra, uh, which was Angrod, uh, then it would have been gold because that whole line, uh, Finarfin's line, all have blonde hair, Galadriel, Finrod, all of them. So um, I would be inclined to have him to have a lighter hair. Um, the strength he portrays, for one, definitely Fingon. Ordreth was very, very weak. So I just cannot subscribe to him being Ordreff's son. Um, and also Galadriel's relationship with him, whether they can say it or say it not, um, it would be, if they were cousins, it would be more, um, it would make more sense in the show, uh, as opposed to Galadriel being his great aunt and him talking to her like that. Just, that would be beyond me. So I'm going to assume that they went with the Fingon um, origin. Any, anybody want to dare to give a different take? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just want to add something that while I, I agree with what Nubera said, I think the, the explanation here is probably a little bit more simple um, in regards to his hair color and his heritage and stuff. I mean, the films portrayed him as a brunette, so I think they just went with it. I just think they wanted him to be recognized, instantly recognizable to viewers of the films. So I think they just I don't think they'll ever explain to us what his parentage is supposed to be. I think they're gonna want to preserve the, you know, the 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 enigma a little bit. Um, but I don't necessarily think that him being a brunette signifies that they think he's in fact the son of the son of Fingon. Well, as that Stark says, the seed is strong. <laughs> so you know. Wow. <laughs> 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 but I think yeah, I think that's a good explanation. They probably won't, sadly, but also because of the rights and everything, they probably won't go into that. Yeah, but, you know, we can always have our headcanons, and I, yeah, for me as well, I think he is probably, like, in my head, he's also Fingons. I'm, uh, I'm just so. hoping they were thinking what I was thinking. So that's why, yeah. in my head, I'm like, well, that's why they did that, of course. 
He did it for <laughs> us. And I would bet that yeah. even if it doesn't get confirmed in the show in some sort of explicit way uh, for a rights issue or whatever, I'm sure the mm-hmm. showrunners and the people in the writer's room, they're thinking about those things. Or at least I hope mm-hmm. they are. You know, that they I, it's, a, it's a big deal. Yeah. He's an important character and it's a big deal. So they probably have some, as you said, Michael, like they probably won't say it, but they, there is probably a headcanon for them as well. Like they have this idea in their head as well. But right. I would love, I would love to see a scene where somebody just comes up to him and says, "Who's your daddy?" So, well, you know, maybe that happens at some point. Probably Sauron at some point, like yeah. at, at the end of season five. I would love, uh, I would love to see <laughs> as Sauron long as I say, play with that. I would, I would love to see I... Sauron play with that. Uh, you know, uh, using it against him, uh, trying to pick the uh, the princes or the heirs against him, because uh, as of right now, uh, the heir would be. Uh, Elrond would be the heir. Uh, he would be the eldest if something happened to Gilgalad. But let's uh, let's say uh, they did another thing. They could also uh, use uh, Celebrimbor, who is his line is dispossessed. Uh, that would be a great play to say, hey, you know, weren't you supposed to be act the actual king? Your your line was originally the the main line, which was supposed to get the kingship. It's the eldest line. It's the Feanorian line. But, uh, you know, because of your brother, you know, passing it over to uh, Fingolfin, you know, he could use that to Sauron could do a bunch of different things and just have a little bitterness there. That would be fun to play with if you really know the lore. So I, I just think stuff like that is fun. Not that they're going to do it at all, but it's just cool to think about. Well, and it would be a great opportunity because they've talked about, you know, I'm thinking about before the show when they would talk about who Gil Gallat's character is and who Elrond's character is. They use the the term politician a number of times and what's more political than making a play for, you know, a seat of power. Right. And what, what kind of political drama is more interesting and intense than a uh, competition for who's supposed to be the high King. And, and you hit the nail on the head that that is kind of, they could play with that depending on the parentage. That could be an issue there, whether or not, you know, Caleb is making an actual play to be the King. Maybe there would just be some resentment or you would have, you know, an element of ego or pride in his dealings with Gilgalad that would sort of bubble to the surface as a result of that history. So that th- those opportunities are there and, and who knows, you know, maybe over the course of the five, uh, the five season show, they'll get a little bit more of the rights and be able to play with that more as things go along. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. So this episode, um, new I know you tweeted out that this was like a feast, uh, of Easter eggs, you know, lots of callbacks for the books and also some for the Jackson films. We saw Narsil, we saw Tuor's Axe, uh, Drambleg. We finally yes. heard about Yarendel. We heard about Dwarven Reincarnation and their approach to yeah. that and, and other stuff. So uh, I want to throw this out to to everybody. What were some of your favorite Easter eggs in this episode? I'm sure I didn't name them all, but uh, what, what are the ones that got you the most excited when you were when you were seeing it? And I'll, I'll start with uh, Varking this time. Well, I mean, the obvious one was how could you not kind of just enjoy the cinematography of the great wave itself, the trees with the, the leaves coming off of them. But the, the way that they did the, the Palantir, the way she grabbed it and that effect that it had on the screen before she went into the vision, I thought that those were extremely, extremely well done. And then my Twitter timeline like broke with the amount of mentions I saw for uh, a special sword that you see, you know, just kind of been passing and everybody knows what it is. Um, those were probably my favorite bits of everything, but I'm also fascinated kind of like by what they're possibly doing with Mithril. 
right? Finally introduced in this, you know, confirmed. We know that it was, we saw it in the box, but it was just more like Pulp Fiction style. What's in the box? And we don't know. Um, but now it's confirmed that it was Mithril in that box. So that was kind of exciting. And, you know, interesting that Elrond is the one who names it. Um, that's sort of another example of them replacing some of Celebrimbor's role with, with Elrond in the show. Because Celebrimbor, I, th I think in the books, was the one who technically gave the name um, of Mithril to that particular ore. But now it's Elrond. Not uh, not important. I think it's consistent with what they're doing. The changes are making with the character. And I think it's fine. But just interesting to note. How about you, Lucatia? Um, yeah, first of all, before I start, I just want to say thank you so much for the super chat, Bill C. Um, some of my, my favorite Easter eggs were, like you guys already mentioned, the, the weaponry that we saw in the Armenelos Tower. Um, so there was, uh, there was also Tuor's axe, Drumberleg, and there was also the, I think the, the shield as well. I thought that was, that was yep. pretty neat. Uh, it, I didn't notice it first time around, um, but, uh, but once it was pointed out, pointed out to me, Wow, that's absolutely amazing. There was also this mural of uh, of uh, Luthien on the wall, I believe, um, which was pretty neat. Again, stuff that you don't even notice, but it's these little world-building details that make the world as rich as it is. And it's just, just a little nod to the fans, and I really appreciated that. But also, um, we talked about it quite a lot on Discord during this past week, so what is this city supposed to be? It's like the Numenorean city. It has this big harbor. Is this supposed to be Armenelos, given that there's the palace there? Is this supposed to be Romena, given that it seems like it's close to the sea? Well, finally, we got the answer in this episode when they name-dropped Armenelos. So apparently, uh, it is, in fact, Armenelos. Also, we got Orodruin name-dropped in, uh, in the Southlands scenes, yes. which was pretty amazing, too. So, yeah, these were my favorites. Those are good ones. I didn't even catch the tapestry of, of Luthien, so I'm going to have to go back and, and look for that. Strider, how about you? I mean, like Ithia said, <laughs> pretty much everything. Uh, I mean, of course, one, like, one million thousand billion gazillion percent. It's Narsil. It was there. So that's so cool. It looks, it's not exactly the same, but it's, it's almost the same as Peter Jackson movies. And we talked about it, like the statue that they have, like a huge statue, and uh, like close to the palace. We speculated speculated that it is uh, very similar to Nasil from the Peter Jackson movies, and it's fantastic. So uh, everything that uh, guys already said, it's very cool. The cinematic of the flood was absolutely stunning, and it's crazy to think we're gonna see. Uh, perhaps like an like an hour, hour version of that, like or half an hour or something. But actually, there's one more thing. It's not exactly confirmed, but a lot of people are speculating that um, we also saw the Dragon Helm of Dorlamin finally, like the actual version of it. So we saw in the in in Durin's home that his kids are wearing those helmets. That very like the design is very similar to Dragon Helm of Dorlamin. But mm -hmm. um, we apparently saw it, and it also makes sense because it's not exactly here uh, clear in the lore. I think what happened to Turin, to Turin's helm. Uh, but uh, I believe that that helm was built by Tel uh, was created by Telhar, who also created Narsil. So he was a dwarven smith for, uh, of Nogrod, I think. And uh, it's really cool that we also saw that. So having those relics of the heroic Adain, it's amazing. 
um, the Drumberleg and the Tours Shield and Narsil and the Helm. It's really cool. So yeah, I was very excited to see those. Though I didn't, I didn't catch the Helm right away, but the other two things, it was so cool to see that. I was yeah, ex- very. I'm very excited about that. If you were like, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he's described as a, a Sylvan elf, so he would have to be from Osirian because he's one of the green elves. They're the only Sylvan elves. The, the other are the Sindar or the Noldor. So if you're from Osirian, you you're part of the Nandor. You'd be considered a, a Sylvan elf. So then you're thinking about the River Gellian and then the, the rivers that that uh, come off of Gellian. So um, I thought that was like a huge drop because it's a huge callback to the first age. Of course, obviously. Um, Towards axe and his, uh, of course, towards axe and towards um, uh, shield and Ordruin was a huge name drop. Um, for what I think the entire season is, the point of this season to me is to set up how Sauron gets Mordor. If we, if if we're really thinking about it, with the whole thing with the Southlands, uh, everything's leading to that. He can't do anything until he gets Mordor. So that name drop and everything that's going on there, um, it just lends so well to the story pushing forward to how he gets his uh, stronghold, how that stronghold gets empty of regular people, how it gets ruined, uh, you know, what he's going to do there. So I thought that was really, really important. And then, you know, obviously Narsil is fun uh, to dab Narsil, but we, we know he's going to get Narsil. So I was I was not as excited. I, I just, I know he's, he gets Narsil. He has it from there anyway, but um, I, I was just like blown away by some of these uh, mentions that especially the Balerian one. Well, and it was it, go ahead, look at you. I just want to jump in with the Balerian one. I, I, I thought it was a little bit, it was a bit of a shame that they didn't actually take that half a second more to just mention the name of the river. Uh, it, it did sound quite, quite weird and it made Balerian sound very, very small. Like I'm from Balerian. Oh yeah. You have that river there. Yeah. They have like, <laughs> you know, dozens of rivers. So I would have appreciated a lot if they just mentioned whether they meant Syrian or Galleon or yeah, that, that was something that irked me a little bit, but it was absolutely beautiful to hear Balerian, especially given that when, uh, in the first episode, when we saw them traveling to Middle Earth, you know, after the, the, the short Valinor prologue, they just show us the map of Middle Earth without Balerian. Uh, so it was really great to actually see uh, them mention it this time. Yeah. yeah, I think it was. It's one of those special permissions to where mm-hmm. it's clearly in the Silmarillion, and they don't have the rights to the map and things like that. But they said, "Hey, can we at least mention uh, Balerion? We we might not be able to mention this river or whatever, but you can surmise from other things of of at least what around what river that he's mm-hmm. from, be due to his origins and his elf type and and things like that." So I I appreciated it, but I understand exactly what you're saying. I completely get it. So one thing that excited me about seeing Narsil, and I didn't catch it at all the first viewing. Uh, it was only afterwards, and you know my timeline was blowing up with like, oh, Narsil, Narsil. <laughs> oh my, I missed it, you know. And of course, I missed the axe too completely. I was looking at the characters in the scene, not the background. Um, but it's is interesting to me that it's in the queen's possession, or you know, the, the king queen's possession, because I, I don't think, and somebody check me if I'm wrong on this, but I don't think we know how Elendil gets Narsil. I mean, we know it comes from Telkar, but I don't think we know how it's passed down to him exactly. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. Yeah. Now, all right. it, it, he's going to get it yeah. from from Muriel. And so that's interesting. And so there's going to be some sort of event that happens. They're already 
clearly getting along and they're a bit they're kind of simpatico you know they're they're uh, inner faithful is kind of they're bonding over that a little bit um, even if they're mm -hmm. not saying so out loud but so they're probably going to grow closer and closer as the season goes on which wasn't necessary didn't need to be the case so that's interesting that that's going to happen and and i wonder what will transpire that will cause her to give him the sword so that's that's something i have my eye on i'm interested in that narratively yeah they're probably going to make like a pretty big deal out of it uh it will probably happen at some very crucial point in the future and yeah you're right uh there is no exact mention how like what what was happening with narsil from the first stage to the point where Elendil comes to middle earth with narsil in his hands so yeah it's, it's probably going to be like a pretty big uh, story point for sure i kind of i always thought it was gonna be like an heirloom of you know the lords of andunia or something so i was a little bit surprised to see it actually in in the palace but i i i correct me on this one i don't think we know for sure what's been happening with with narsil so i suppose their version is perfectly plausible yeah so yeah i'm a little bit you know, I, I kind of hoped we would get a scene with his father and everything. Uh, but, you know. Maybe, some, yeah. maybe someday. It's still possible. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I'm just chalking up to, like, uh, the same way uh, they got Tuor's uh, axe, the mm -hmm. same way they got, um, you know, Aaron Ruth. Um, we know that the dwarves, there's there's a couple possible ways that this could happen. So especially with Telkar, yeah. he would often give away, uh, you know, his stuff, you know, so... Mm -hmm. uh, Clearly, all his stuff, when, you, when it comes from Mount Dolmed, has to go through Carinthia's hands. Mm -hmm. So if whether it was through one of the Seven Sons or whether he directly gave it to Thingol, and then we know that Thingol's, all Thingol's stuff went directly to uh, went to Numenor, um, mm -hmm. you know, from the, the Havens and everything, because uh, his family line passed from there. So it, either way, it's fine with me. It doesn't really, really matter. But it, we can we can kind of surmise, I, th I think, of which, you know, where, how it got there for the most part. Can I just add one one other little thing before we move on? I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, I just wanted to say that I also find it quite interesting how how fast Elendil's you know climb has been. In the previous yeah. season, Muriel didn't even really know who he was, and now his presence at at I don't know her meeting with Galadriel and everything. And when um, at the end of the episode, when you know Nimrod starts shedding the blossoms. Uh, she directly, you know, she she stares at him. She looks at him. So it seems that um, you know their connection is building up pretty pretty quickly. I I would have hoped for a little bit more substance to this particular relationship. I mean, this is sort of a situation like in in Kingdom of Heaven when we have everybody just trusting Balian from the get go just because of his father or whatever, and everybody just being like, yeah, we know you can help us. And he, I, I kind of need a little more substance to it, a little bit more build up to, to this sort of trust in relationship. So I'm kind of hoping that we get to see more of that going, going forward. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Um, uh, Kingdom of Heaven really is one of the movies that really benefits from its director's cut because it really gives the depth to all the relationships but yeah for sure um yeah, I, I think I, I think it's connected to the fact that um perhaps she um uh, muriel believes that since elendil is the one who found her who found galadriel brought her to numenor then she awarded him like this special assignment which was i guess to like keep yeah. an eye on galadriel that's probably the connection there but i agree i think this 
uh, this is like a symptomatic thing throughout the season. We, it, it always feels, or like very often it feels that we are missing like a scene or two to bridge the gaps and like to deepen either a relationship or some particular event. Uh, I am definitely hoping that Amazon will change their format because most of their bigger shows, they have like eight episodes per season. I'm really hoping that they will give Rings of Power in future seasons, that they will give them 10 episodes because if they continue to to develop stories the way they're developing the stories in first season so far, I think they will they would really benefit from having those tiny uh, scene, like cut, cut like in between scenes of people traveling or just like some small relationship building uh, scenes uh, between characters because we are, it feels so often in these four episodes that we are missing something like that. So I completely agree with that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I didn't. I that was one of the things that I I completely. If uh, you guys saw my video, I, I said I hated about the other episode that uh, it's literally completely asinine that uh, Muriel wouldn't know who Elinda was. That doesn't make sure. any sense whatsoever. Um, even Farazan and 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 Amandil were were friends, so that doesn't make any sense that he doesn't know <laughs> she doesn't know who, who he is. But um. What I was thinking is um, with the progression of what we're seeing from Muriel's character, um, she's fighting with herself. Um, you know, she wants she wants to be a faith, the faithful, but she's playing a very political game, especially she sees the surroundings of what's going on in Numenor. And Farazon was a, a perfect uh, exposition of what's happening, especially with his scene. That was the most powerful scene in the entire episode for me, just him. And that's just giving him a big push as to how he's going to gain uh, his following and, and gain the kingship eventually. So spoiler alert. Um, so just her struggling with that, her seeing the vision of Galadriel, and then he brings Galadriel and he's, he's just like, what is going on? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, so then she's like, okay, he's clearly one of the faithful. He's not, he didn't listen to my orders. He brings her to the, he knows he's one of the faithful. So now she's like, okay, I can trust him because I'm really one of the faithful, but I'm playing his game. She can't let on to that. So this is stuff that I'm just getting in my head. And um, I'm not sure if they're doing a proper job of uh, displaying that, but it's like, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's the same with Galadriel. A lot of people are like, oh, Galadriel's acting this way, but I have a lot of thoughts as to why she's acting the way she's acting. And it makes a lot of sense for some stuff. They they are doing a, a little bit of a bad job with, you know, giving her a little exposition, but I understand certain things. So this is just my thought process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, a really good point. A lot of people talk about the pacing of the show and how, you know, especially the first couple episodes, how it was slow. But I, I actually think everything has been really fast. Like if you were to take the individual plot lines, it's like it's so rapid. If you were just to just pull out the Harfoot scenes and put them all back to back and actually see the progression of their their plot line or the just the Numenor scenes and or just the Elrond and Durin scenes, like so much is happening so quickly. It's like we cut away from Elrond and Durin and then we go back and like the half the tower is built. You know, stuff is happening really, really rapidly. Mm-hmm. But just because there are so many different plot lines that they have to jump around to, um, you know, you'll go through a whole episode and only see a couple of sequences of scenes for each group. So it's it, it feels like things are going slowly, but actually things are going really quickly. It's kind of kind of interesting. Um, I want to get into I want to talk about the, the namesake of this episode, the Great Wave. But before we do that, we, we got a super chat from Bill C that I want to address because I don't plan on talking about Isildur too much in this uh, discussion. But he says. Most intriguing, the voice calling to Isildur. Why is it calling him to join his brother in Endustar in the west of Numenor? Um, and I, I have thoughts about this. I 
I think a lot of people had a lot of different theories. I am now 100% on the that's the voice of his mother that he's hearing um, because I think her loss is going to be at the center of, of you know, his emotional arc and Ellendale's emotional arc and their arc together, you know, getting over the grief of her loss. I mean, one of the central themes of Tolkien, and it seems like this show, is exploring mortality and the way that you deal with it. And, um, you know, we've learned that she died and Ellendale's dealing with that grief. I think Isildur's dealing with that grief as well. And I think it's her voice that we're hearing. But I know there are, there are other theories and other options out there. So if anybody else has a different idea, um, sock it to me. Well, the only other one that I heard was Uinan. It could be yeah. Uinan's voice. But in a way, I I don't see that happening, given that Isildur seems to be turning away from you know the seafaring adventures at this point. So I don't see Uinan calling to him and then him being like, okay, I'm just going to screw up my, my whole career as a a sailor right now so that would be a bit of a weird connection for me there i think um yeah i think the the mother is uh more plausible and also because of maybe varkin can chime in here uh we did hear a little bit more about his mother um during a recent reddit talk do you want to shed some light on that sure thing uh thank you for allowing me to self-promote the Reddit talk where we just did an interview with Emma Horvath, who plays a amazing, who is Sildor's sister or uh, Elendil's daughter. And she had mentioned, I think possibly on accident, that Isildur's mother died from trying to save Isildur from drowning. That is how she passed, according to, you know, what she had said. So I, I am a big believer that it's his mother that's calling to him. Um, but the, the other theory I've heard is that there's some sort of voice of the faithful that's trying to get – it's at the sea, but it's at the western part of the shore where you have western Numenor where maybe mm -hmm. the family believes that Narian ran off to and that Isildur feels guilty that either, one, his mother died trying to save him and she's sort of calling him back maybe mm -hmm. to the spot because he feels guilty like it's in his head, or she's calling him to the western shore to try to reunite him with his brother. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I think uh, the the interview was definitely really cool, and Emma was amazing. And thank her, th th thank you, uh, thanks to her for mentioning this because this definitely helps shed some light on Isildur and uh, also like the whole relationship, like the whole dynamic in their family. Uh, this gives it like an, another uh, twist to the whole thing. But for me, I don't see the mother being the person calling to him. For the specifically, it would make sense, but specifically for the sake of lore reasons, because I, we don't have, I don't think we have an instance of um, a human spirit reaching out to someone like that. So either it's it's just him imagining it, or if it is a voice, I I would absolutely bet on it being Uin and def definitely, even though it, it's kind of strange, um, she is one of the Maiar, like she's the wife of Ose, who is like the the, he embodies the the storm, the the tempest of the sea of the seas, and she is the calming voice. And so, and uh, she was very respected in Numenor. Uh, so I could see that being her. Like if I had to make a bet, I would definitely bet on Uinen, especially especially because we kind of saw us. We saw a statue that people mm -hmm. speculating it's her. Uh, the statue that uh, in the prison, right? I think in the prison cell where the prison cells are. So I think the, 
maybe they wouldn't put the statue there for no reason. Then again, maybe, of course, it can be just a nice easter egg. But I will still bet that it's Uinen if I had to choose. Specifically, mainly because of the law reasons. I think uh, I think the vo- who the voice is is not as important as the why the voice is calling him. Mm-hmm. I think that being that we're going backwards, we got to remember that we we're coming from a place where we know what happens in the third age and his uh, his impact and and his fate, and it's all about fate. So it's, they're calling to him to his fate. So uh, he he needs to be on that side of the island uh, for whatever his fate is going to be. So I think that regardless of who it is, whether it's his mother or Unin, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's that we know his fate is the focal point, especially mm-hmm. at the end of the second age and um, the beginning of the third age. It's, he's the focal point. It, it all goes to him. And we all know that. Like As far as Numenorians go, he is the main one. He is the focal point. So they're going to get him where he needs to be. And they're showing why and how and, and all that stuff and, and the voice calling him so he, he can't be on the sea when he needs to be there to you know do the stuff that he needs to do like i said no spoilers but he needs to do certain <laughs> things in numenor then he needs to to be certain places and and how does he get there why did he stay why isn't he out on the ship why is, you know his voice is calling him it's calling his fate so that's that's how i feel about it that's a great point okay. uh, you know the narrative purpose of it um, I think that's a really good point. We should always keep in mind that Isildur is kind of, he's going to be the through line to the third age. He is the most important character. And I forget that because everyone's excited about Elendil and Muriel, you know, these new characters that we've been curious about for a long time, but Isildur is the guy, you know, that we need to be watching. Um, so let's get into this episode. And I want to start at the beginning talking about the wave. I mean, this episode starts with a real bang and, uh, you know, Muriel's in a ceremony called the Blessing of the Children, where they welcome newly born children. But the ceremony is, of course, cut short by a great wave, which we all know as book readers. We know it's coming for Numenor. We learn later in the Palantir <laughs> scene, Muriel and Galadriel, that this is a vision Muriel saw in the Palantir. And now she's having recurring dreams or nightmares about it. And she believes that this is already to be Numenor's fate um, if Numenor goes down the wrong path. So this choice to show the viewers the great wave at the beginning of this episode, four episodes into this series. It's a very interesting choice, <laughs> showrunners. Um, first, it tells us that Muriel knows exactly what's coming for Numenor. Not not only that Numenor is on the you know path of its own destruction, but exactly how it will be destroyed. It's kind of surprising to me. Um, that's a degree of foresight I don't know that we get in the books. And surely that knowledge will play a central role in all of her decisions going forward. And we already see that happen here in her scenes with Galadriel. She's trying to figure out, well, what's the right path? What's the wrong path? Because if I choose wrong, we're all going to drown in a big wave. Um, second, it also tells all the viewers how Numenor ends and that it ends. And so th- that removes any surprise for the viewers. Um, and I'm thinking, of course, specifically about new fans who wouldn't know that this is Numenor's destiny. So what do we think about this choice by the showrunners to reveal the great wave this early in the series? Better, let's uh, I think it's fine. Uh, if you take a, pay attention to the, uh, the, the books, uh, the, the, the lame of the last book is the return of the king. So it completely gives away what's going to happen. And it's, yet still, it says the return of the king. So we know the king returns, but yet still we're all at the, the, uh, the edge of our seat. Like, oh my God, is, is, are they going to make it? Are they going to defeat? Is, is Aragorn going to take the throne? And mm-hmm. So I think it's fine. Um, I think at this point in uh, pop culture, 
even the people who haven't read the book knows that Numenor is going to fall. <laughs> they know that Numenor, the destruction of Numenor is a thing. It's always compared to Atlantis. They wouldn't be just comparing it to the looks. They would be comparing it to his downfall as well. I think it was very important. So we're seeing like, I think it's like, you know, it's giving us uh, giving us something, especially the the fans, even the casual fans that just know it's giving us something. Um, it's giving a look into Muriel as to like her her decisions. Uh, are we doing the right thing? Like just like you said, like now her decision is going to get rattled because she was playing a very political game, but she can't afford to keep playing that political game if she wants to save her people. And Galadriel, Galadriel helped her with that helped her with that decision you know what i'm saying and she helped mm -hmm. galadriel as well you know fix her character and 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 be able to be out more so i think showing the wave was very important and showing galadriel the wave was very important because now galadriel can look in, into her with to someone who she looked at to um a little bit with uh, resentment is gone because she's looking at the numenorians who she thinks are all the kingsmen as enemies and she doesn't feel like she can trust them except uh, with the exception of Alindu. So she's, she's looking at them like she's surrounded by enemies. So when, when she actually takes her and says, Hey, put your hand here. This is what I'm dealing with. And she, you know, she's like, Oh, looking at her father. And she's like, Oh, I didn't know. And then you see Galadriel go from being cold and being rude and being just being defensive. You go to be her apologizing for the first time and being like, listen, I didn't Okay. Now I, I feel like I can, we can we can have a connection, and this is a the growth that I'm talking about that I saw in Galadriel, and I, and I understand why she uh completely acts the way she does. Uh, she's she has a the, the she has, I'm going on a little tangent here, but she has the uh the the knowledge that Sauron is still out there. Nobody's listening to her. She gets uh you know a kind of a mutiny. Then Gilgalad sends her away. And you know what I'm saying? She's like, keeps running. And then she she's explaining the history of Numenor to Halbrand. And she's like, yeah, I don't, they, they, they turn the elves away. They don't mess with the elves anymore. This, that, and the third. And, and then she's just like, okay, can you send me back? And they're like, nah, nah. And then she's then she just being brash and being very defensive. So it's, it's, I understand it to a point. They might be turning it up a little too much, but then you finally see her let her guard down Finally, when she gets, she touches the plant, she sees what uh, Muriel's dealing with, why she's the way she is. She's actually uh, got her, her father, who actually is one of the faithful, and Galadriel knows this. So she's like, okay, I can open up to you. I can, I can be a little more, you know, uh, you know, I, I can, I can open up my heart and say, okay, I need your help. Can you help me? Yeah, and, and then, and then Muriel makes the right decision. So I think that wave plays a whole part in all of that. You know, Muriel's decision of doing that, which changes everything and the fate of Middle Earth, obviously, because they're going to go to the Southlands. I also don't think that it's too much for the casual viewer. I think that if, if you're somebody who's coming into this fresh and you don't know what's eventually going to happen, you see that great wave and you're like, oh, shoot, right out the jump. And then after that, it happens a second time when Galadriel gets her hand on it. And you're like, oh, okay, this is like, a vision of the future if they don't change their ways. But like, you know, these are the two, they're two good guys. They should be able to figure out a way to work around this. And then the great wave won't happen. And Numenor is going to continue to prosper. So I think uh, casual fans, I think they're going to be, be okay with it. But like when we open, you know, last episode, you had Adar as the title. They kind of talk about him at the beginning, but then you don't see him until the very end. Then you open up this episode, I click on it, it's the Great Wave, and you're like, okay, that's probably the 
ending cliffhanger of the episode and then they hit you with it right <laughs> at the start i just thought the way that they did it it looked amazing um it's late for me when i watch it but it went from like why 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 are we holding babies to oh my god everybody's drowning i i was actually pretty pumped for it you know i, I mostly care about the dwarf stuff but the numenor stuff the more i see it the more i get intrigued by it and i just i think the beginning of the episode set the tone for how fast things are coming for mm -hmm. the rest of hopefully the entire season yeah, I uh, one thing uh, that I want to add on top of what Varking just said, I completely agree with him that the casual viewer who doesn't know much about Numenor will instantly think, okay, this is something to be prevented. Uh, but on the other hand, I would also expect that lots of people wouldn't take the, the, the wave itself, you know, literally. I think visions often work in a way where they're heavily metaphorical. Um, this sort of wave could signify a downfall of a civilization of maybe just, you know, Muriel's rule coming to an end being potentially, you know, this being a vision of her being usurped by Farazon or something. So maybe when that starts to happen, people will be like, okay, she kind of, you know, foretold that. I don't think that many people or at least i don't think everybody would just assume okay yeah so you know there's a literal atlantis situation going on like a, an actual apocalypse is gonna hit numenor because that's that's pretty out there you know they didn't really talk at length about what happened to Beleriand, so i suppose people would be like okay within this world is it even possible that an island will just you know get completely wrecked so I don't think that's too much of a of a, of a sort of a spoiler from the get go. I think some people might be a little bit disappointed when it actually does happen because they will be like, okay, we've kind of actually seen that before. Um, but yeah, and I also regarding the wave itself, I don't think it blew me away too much. Most of the most of the graphics, I thought it was fine. I thought we'd already seen better uh, elsewhere but the the one thing that i did like a lot was just the wave on the horizon that giant one just you know getting ready to to hit i think that one was done better than the water starting to you know splash around town itself so, yeah. um yeah for me um well firstly i i, I want to expand a bit on the fans like i, I think there are definitely, definitely several types of fans or, or like the viewers of the show you know there's like us the mega nerds uh then there's those people maybe like more casual fans of tolkien who maybe read books once or twice or just watch the movies or something and but the fact is that probably the majority of people will be maybe just the people who either watch the movies just the movies without reading the books or just don't know anything like there's going to be a lot of people who are just tuning in for the first time in middle uh, in middle earth through this show so i would uh, yeah for me it was definitely surprised to to see them doing uh, the great wave now but and to, to give this hint but i think for a lot of people i think they could they could see this as a metaphor but i really appreciate that they did it uh, because it's it, it's it's an important thing because one of the things that happens in in the Lord of the Rings as well. Uh, so in in the books, I don't think it's much. It's actually kind of mentioned, I think, in the extended um, edition of uh, the Two Towers. But Faramir, 
Denethor and once Boromir uh, have this vision of the Great Wave themselves. And it's actually a part of the prophecy that makes Boromir uh, eventually set out to find Rivendell and go to the Council of Eldrond. That's the motivation of Boromir in the books. So Faramir and Denethor and then once Boromir see this vision of this Great Wave that um, floods the world in a way, or like floods Middle-earth, I'm not sure what exactly it's flooding, but probably uh, Middle-earth. Um, and it's a, it's a very big deal for Tolkien. And actually, I have this tiny little code that I prepared because I thought we would probably touch upon this. I mean, that's what the name of the episode is. So in one of his letters, he wrote, for when Faramir speaks of his private vision of the Great Wave, he speaks for me. That vision and dream has, ever been, uh, has been ever with me. It has been inherited as I only discovered recently by one of my children, Michael. So for Tolkien, Atlantis is one of the most important myths. And he has this, of course, we know he was a Catholic, a devout Catholic. And, uh, you know, the flood, the myth of the flood, it's such a huge deal. So for him to put this in his world meant a lot. And I think it's pretty cool that they're doing this right away and to set this up as some sort of a motivation for some of the characters in this show is a pretty uh, cool thing for the showrunners to do because they didn't have to do it. They didn't have to do it, but they used something that was a huge motivation for Boromir and Faramir and put it here. So I think that's a pretty cool move from uh, on their part to do. Mm-hmm. And I and forgot what was the original question, but here we are. <laughs> who, who feels for, for Mirio though? Because we know that uh, after the great armament and then, uh, you know, when the, the wave actually comes, you know, she's not really part of the great armament, but she can't make it to the top of the mental trauma and she gets to come by the wave. And we like when you're reading the Akalabeth, you're kind of like, oh, my God, I hope she makes it, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and it's just, like who feels for that? Like when you see that, you know, and it's specifically her that's seeing the wave because mm-hmm. if Farrah's mm-hmm. on sort of wave nobody wouldn't give a shit you know what i'm saying we'd be like that's what you get you know what i'm saying yeah. like we wouldn't care exactly Mario, we feel for her because we know what she went through after reading the Calabas. so I, I thought that was important that it was her seeing it it definitely yeah, sets the stakes early on in this mm-hmm. season you know to say if the characters continue going down the wrong path this is what could happen um so now we're going to be creates a lot of suspense even though it takes away the surprise it adds suspense uh, because we know that the characters are thinking about trying to avoid that fate and uh, yeah. I think we're being invited to wonder uh, at each of their decision points whether or not that decision is going to be taking them closer or farther away from from the great wave which and this is actually qu- quite sorry for cutting in this is actually yeah. quite similar to what we've seen in first the first episode with Gilgalad sending Galadriel away um, because he has foreseen that should she stay, she would, you know, bring about Sauron's return or whatever. Um, and I think this might be a sort of a parallel situation where, you know, they, they know the ultimate fate. They're trying to avoid it, but fate is fate. There's not much they can do about it. So, Well, and that's perfect. That brings me actually right into the next thing I want to talk <laughs> about, which is, uh, you know, the Galadriel and Muriel plot lines, they have a lot of scenes together, and this really is their their episode together um you know the last episode we had more of galadriel and elendil getting to know each other but now we're spending a lot of time with galadriel and muriel and um r- rather than sort of summarize all the scenes I, I i think one thing that i got out of it is that the showrunners are trying to tell us that um they're trying to tie numenor's fate to galadriel very like you know muriel in her vision 
says the vision always starts with Galadriel mm-hmm. arriving on the island, right? And so Muriel believes that Galadriel arriving uh, is, you know, sort of some this harbinger of doom. And so Muriel thinks that, well, if I get Galadriel off of the island, that's the way that I save Numenor from this fate. That's what she initially thinks. And then as she kicks Galadriel off the island, you know, the petals of Nimloth fall and we get this voiceover from what she said earlier saying like the faithful believe that the, the petals of Nimloth, it's like the tears of the Valar, it's their mm-hmm. judgment. And so she, she thinks, Oh crap, you know, I've, I've made the wrong decision. <laughs> we need to get Galadriel back here and do the opposite because, uh, which man, that's like, I mean, what an awesome level of superstition. It's like, ah, the, the tree's losing its petals. I better do the exact opposite of what I was just doing. But you know, <laughs> they're setting it up that way mm-hmm. and not making it clear whether or not it's the right or wrong decision to the viewer. And so I think it's posing the question to the audience uh, by following Galadriel to middle earth is Muriel bringing Numenor closer to salvation or closer to its doom. And before you answer, I also want to tie it back to what Gil Gallad foresaw, which is that Galadriel by being single-mindedly going after Sauron could potentially I forget the metaphor I use, but, you know, uh, the same uh, wind that can blow out a candle can also fan the flame. And so Gilgalad mm-hmm. thought that Galadriel might actually bring about Sauron's rise. And I'm wondering if by going back to the Southlands and bringing Numenor with them, is that going to precipitate some sort of sequence of events that results in Sauron, for example, coming to Numenor and corrupting Farazhan, right? So um, I don't know whether Muriel's making the right choice or the wrong choice, and I think we're supposed to wonder about that. So, um, you know, give me your thoughts uh, about that. Barking, let's start off with you. Well, sort of going with what you were just saying about that, the, you know, the candle or being able to, you can you can blow it out or you can make the flame even worse. That's sort of one of my running theories with this season. I know some people believe that maybe Celebrimbor has already been influenced by Anatar, and that's why he wants this forge built by spring and he's in a rush to get it. But on the flip side, there's the, the like the counter theory to that where maybe Gil Galad knows Sauron's, you know, he's not completely extinguished. There's still remnants of him out there and he, he will come back at some point, but that's why he wants Elrond partnered with Celebrimbor so that they could build this forge in time to craft some, weapons and armors and different pieces that will help rally the troops later and that's why he wants Galadriel to kind of slow a roll and not really like drive so hard after this and kind of make him you know come to well before they were ready for him. Nubeta how about you? I mean I got a a roundabout way of thinking about things I'm I'm thinking about the, the focal point of the entire series uh, is is always Sauron. So I think exactly what you said with Gilgalad's fear, Galadriel's drive towards Sauron, uh, Sauron's hatred for the Numenorians, the time skip. We got to remember they're skipping time. So we're already in the Farazhan era where Isildur, Farazhan are all basically about to come into power and things like that. So the Numenorians at this point had already gone over and helped Sauron. Now they already skipped all of this time, had fought against Sauron, excuse me, and they already skipped all of this. So they're going to have them run into, uh, maybe not Sauron himself, but they're going to interfere with Middle-earth. And um, literally, I think that's going to just, like you said, cause more of a problem than anything 
for themselves because uh, then Sauron's going to have more of an axe to grind with them uh, because, and Galadriel's inadvertently doing this. You know what I'm saying? So I'm thinking about all of that stuff, like the timeline, um, you know, because they had, like I said, they had already helped the elves uh, defeat or push back Sauron rather. And by this time, now we're going, we're skipping all the way to the end where Farazon is going to eventually come and take Sauron. So since they can't do that, they're getting the Numenorians to Middle Earth to have a conflict of some sorts in that way because we can't, by all means, go back in time. So uh, I think that's that's going to have uh, some bad effects because um, as of right now, we're going, we're clearly seeing the rise of Sauron. So nothing really bad is going to happen to him. No defeat is really going to happen. He's going to come up in some kind of way, whether we know it or not. He's going to be winning. Whether you know, what I'm saying. It, even if Numenor wins, something's going to happen in his favor where it's, he's going to get the land he wants. He's going to get the position he wants to influence. You know what I'm saying? And Galadriel is inadvertently helping all of this and, and, and everybody else is too, unbeknownst to all of them. And I think that's that's the problem there. I like the idea of, you know, the, the tragic Greek <laughs> prophecies uh, usually uh people in greek myths uh there you know there's a prophecy and then they try to circumvent it to try to like avoid it like to sidestep and just go around it but by doing so they do the exact thing that they shouldn't have done and then they make the prophecy come true so i, I definitely uh, agree with uh, what you guys said that like we can agree on the fact that there's a lot of pressure on muriel and galadriel and it it looks like they may uh, be the 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 reasons the, the cause of their fears coming true, and that's very interesting to a way to go about it. Especially the whole Galadriel storyline in the show is, of course, very interesting, <laughs> and uh, it's not like a lore thing, so it's pretty much an original uh, plot thread. So it's interesting to see how they will go about it because, you know, as, as things stand now, I'm not very convinced with what they're doing with her plot. Again, I, I, I really feel the need to, to, to repeat this. I love Morphe Clark as Galadriel. I think she is an amazing casting. I think she's really killing it with material she has. So it's nothing on her account at all by any means. Uh, but I, the story herself, uh, itself, I'm not super convinced with it. And it, I think they're really going to um, pull the rabbit out of the hat with, to, to make this whole Galadriel being the key for Sauron's return actually make sense and be worth the wait and be like a worthy payoff. But I think they have a, an easier job when it comes to Muriel's arc. I think that was that's probably much easier to pull off. And I think they're on a, off to a really good start at this point. Especially because she has to balance so many things, and we uh, we speculated uh, after the like, yeah, last week that she is probably, and I mean it's pretty clear now in this episode that she's just playing as one of the let's call them Kingsmen. I don't know if they are called Kingsmen at this point, but she's playing Farazon and, and the public as being against the elves, but it's pretty obvious that she's um, on the side of the faithful. So I think, yeah. They're doing a pretty good job so far with Muriel, but I'm not sure about Galadriel. There's still a lot, a lot to go through to make it worth it. I'm thinking 
to answer your question, Mike, I'm not sure if their immediate departure now is going to directly um, result in the downfall of Numenor. Um, what I mean by this is that I do, I, and I, I'm not saying that you implied that, but I know some people have been speculating whether Muriel is going to take Farazon's role in, and bring Sauron back by the end of their expedition, which I absolutely do not think is the case. Um, I think they will still, they, I think what they're doing is they're going to combine uh, the timeline of, you know, Tartalperion and uh, Kiriatur and Minastir with the current rulers of Numenor. So what I think is going to happen eventually is we eventually have the rings made, we have the war of Elves and Sauron, and then I think Numenorians are going to arrive again and take Sauron back to Numenor at that point. So I think this is the, um, this is the timeline, um, just, you know, condensation that they're going to be doing. Um, but that is like two seasons down the line, in my opinion. So what, what exactly is going to happen now is absolutely beyond me. We've seen some clips from the trailer. Um, I think this season is going to actually culminate in, in the Southlands. I think whatever's going down is going down there. Um, how exactly we, will they contribute to, to Sauron, you know, getting Mordor under his, his control? I have absolutely no idea. I have no idea what would happen. I think the, the most logical explanation at this point and how it would make the most sense from a dramatic point of view for the characters is if Halbrand is in fact Sauron. I think that would be the, mo the most poignant and the most um, dramatic given that you know Galadriel has been hunting Sauron for centuries and now she's, she's had him in front of her face all along and then you know, unwillingly helping him regain his power. I think that would be the most shocking for the viewer, the most shocking for Galadriel herself. Uh, but how exactly all this would go down, if that's the case, is beyond me. Exactly uh, what I was going to say. I 100% agree with that. Uh, agree with that, and that would make Galadriel's uh, arc all the more better. It would, and it, it would, it would make Gilgalad right. So then. Because a lot of people don't agree with how Gilgalad handled that, but it would actually make what he said right. She was actually bringing about the, the ruin that she's dreading so much, and it would make her art right. So my dad used to always tell me, if you don't want to learn, life is going to teach you. You can't beat life. Life is always going to teach you. And that's kind of the thing what they're doing with Galadriel. So Halbrand is right in front of her face. She's actually trusting him, listening to him, doing all this. You see all the weird stuff he's doing. I'm not saying that's Sauron, but that's my belief. But it would make sense. She's doing all this, putting these pieces in places, and all kind of from his direction a little bit. And mm -hmm. boom, she actually set Sauron up. And then this would give her, calm your ass down. Mm -hmm. now use your wisdom. It would set her up to be like, I can't be rash. I can't be defensive. I got to be smart. I got to be wise and, and look at things for what they really are. It would actually really flush out her character to where, oh, how did she get there? She made these mistakes being so rash and being how we don't like how she is right now. And she had to learn a lesson from life smacking her, her face <laughs> and she bringing about the, the actual downfall of the world yeah. because she's going so hard and then now you see her change later in later seasons and become wiser and more removed and saying you know what i'm not going to handle things rashly let's try to use our wisdom because when i did this before look how it worked out i actually brought sauron or, or made his plan work better or faster or, or whatever the case may have you so i, I actually agree 100 with what you just said that was really dope 
and I just want to give kudos to to Strider because I thought that he's uh, calling back to the Greek tragedy. And I don't know if you were thinking about it, but a really good example of this is Oedipus, the king. Um, yeah, 100%. I, I, I thought that was that was a really cool yeah. connection. And I think, I, I mean, I don't expect Galadriel to be a tragic character necessarily. Um, I certainly hope there's no incest in her future. Um, but at any rate, um, yeah, I, I don't think that's where they're going with her. But I think they're going to be um, maybe playing up her hubris a little bit. And I do hope eventually we get a, a scene where her and Gilgalad are just being like, I told you so. No, I told you so. I told you he wasn't gone yet. Well, I told you if you go looking for him, you're just going to, you know, stir everything up. <laughs> so that yeah. would be pretty neat. <laughs> yeah. Well, and speaking but, of Halbrand as Sauron, uh, strategy, you have something before we move on to the next? Actually, episode? I think uh, I was going to say something, what you're about to say. So please finish, finish your question, okay. then I can. Well, we didn't get a whole lot of Halbrand in this episode, but what we got, I think, certainly fed the the flames of the Halbrand is Sauron uh, theorizers and those conspiracy theorists, right? You know, we get Halbrand in a jail cell, just like Sauron at one point was in a jail cell in Numenor. Um, and he speaks to Farazon. He whispers in his ear, betraying Galadriel in the process, who we thought mm -hmm. they were getting along. He 100% just betrays Galadriel at the drop of a hat and tells Farazon, hey, chill out. You know, he, there's an easier way to get her. And Farazon listens, right? Again, like Sa how Sauron would whisper in Farazon's ear and, and influence him as a corrupted advisor. Um, obviously, the circumstances are very different from what we get in the books when Sauron is brought over. But if the showrunners are taking the true Sauron and Numenor arc and trying to twist it a little bit, we're seeing parallels thematically with in terms of what Halbrand is doing. You know, he's literally standing over Farazon's shoulder and whispering in his ear. Um, so... I am. Per I personally do not believe that Halbrand is is Sauron, but they are certainly giving us some some meat to chew on. If you want to believe that theory, just like they're they're throwing red meat to people who want to believe that the stranger is Sauron and who want to believe Edar is uh, Sauron. You know, they're encouraging all these different theories at once. But we got a little bit to feed the Halbrand is Sauron beast, and uh, so I'm curious if anybody on this panel is 100% behind that theory and they believe that's where it's going. So, uh, yeah, right. so I, I wanted to say, yeah, um, I, I, I've been saying it the whole time. I really don't want Halbrand to be Sauron. Like, I 100% do not want that. But I've been fearing that from the start. And they are definitely <laughs> dropping hints like crazy every, every episode. And even this, like, as you said, Mike, like, we saw him for, I don't know, five minutes maybe. Like, maybe even less. He, spe he speaks like two times, three times. And we see this him whispering in the ear of of, of uh, Farazon, mani manipulating top tier, like the very peak of Numenor's, you know, government. He is manipulating them into making some really huge decisions. And uh, I, I gotta say, I after this episode, I, I am now very sure that he is sadly he sour. Like I'm, I'm moving into that camp without like i really hate that idea but uh it also a big proof for that is the so in the books i mean as as a lot of people know of course um the way that sauron becomes the captive of numenor is that um numenor has been for centuries up to that point 
been establishing colonies. They became the greatest military force in the world. Like when you look, take Middle Earth and Numenor, uh, Numenor is the greatest military force of that time. They are crazy OP. Like they could wage war against everybody and probably win on their own. They have uh, colonies throughout uh, Middle Earth. They like the whole concept of <laughs> I see working. Uh, yeah, okay, maybe maybe may, maybe Turin Folk could beat Numenor. Fair enough. Uh, they cannot sell their boats to, to Kazadum, so yeah, fair enough. Uh, but and there's like this whole concept of colonialism, uh, con- colonialism, and all that. And in the show, what we have, and a lot of people took issues with that, is um, Mirio says, "Okay, let's go to Middle Earth." And the next scene is they are taking volunteers from common folk uh, of of Numenor, which, to be fair, Numenorians are supposed to be you know superhumans kind of compared to the to the men of Middle Earth. So it it still kind of makes sense. But not that, not that, not really. Like we don't, we we apparently won't be getting Numenor as this amazing colonial force, which means it's hard to imagine that at some point in the next two seasons we will have Numenor become this force. While on the other hand, uh, getting a Mordor as this other huge force because Mordor is about to become Mordor, so we cannot get this scene where Numenor shows up, and it's so awe-inspiring that uh, Sauron's forces just drop their weapons, leave, and Sauron can only surrender and become a prisoner of Numenor. So sadly, (laughs) this looks like they will just drop this whole Numenor shows up, everybody grabs their pants, Sauron (laughs) becomes a prisoner. Like, it appears that they will will just sidestep that whole thing and we may actually have Halbrand as, as Sauron. And then all those flirty views with Galadriel I just I I'm just gonna I'm just gonna stop here <laughs> I'm also currently a big believer in the Halbrand is Sauron thinking and uh it's just the way that he's been operating has been very very it's it's charismatic but it's still subtle and like when you look at that scene that they had with Farazan at the end and he's like you don't have to fight her you don't have to do anything right here you know where she's going and he's kind of like doing this long-term planning earlier in the episode Farazan when he's talking to his son with the awful haircut Kemen <laughs> he, he says something to him and he says don't be clever be wise clever is for the small-minded and when you think about a quote like that you have Galadriel, who's trying to get that instant gratification on things, she's being clever in her words, but she's like she wants everything right now. Farazan is trying to teach his son the lesson of how you play chess and how you use one move or another move to set up something in the future. And Halbrand appears to be operating on that level at the moment, and it adds an extra layer of intrigue to that character that I'm really, really looking forward to seeing play out. I was very anti. Sauron can't be Halbrand. I, d- I didn't like that at all. But as it's starting to play out on screen, I'm definitely coming around to it more and more and more. Um, but also with that quote, I am just really enjoying Farazan himself. I think he's outstanding right now. I-, I love the way that he communicates with the people. And I believe that he, I think the gentleman's name was Tamar, who got beat up by Halbrand earlier. I believe he 
did something, either offered him money or a position or something to kind of spark the people to gal, you know, gather in like yeah. that area so he can come out and quell it and get the people to rally behind him. And now when you look at how that episode ended with Farazan being in support of what they were doing and not locking up Galadriel, it's sort of setting the seeds where like maybe if Muriel and Galadriel take a little trip to Middle Earth and who's left to run things there the people obviously follow him at the moment i think that he could be you know setting himself up to take on a bigger role of power than he currently has well and he says you know when he's quelling that that riot he says trust in me by the calluses of my hands you know numenor will never fall into elven hands i zoomed in i don't i did not see any calluses on his <laughs> i looked too <laughs> i i just want to say something we we kind of want to believe we would love to believe that all these little hints and stuff are planted uh in the show for us hardcore fans they're not I think, you know, the show isn't primarily made for us. The show is made for the broadest audience possible. And the audience really likes to feel smart. Uh, and of course, from time to time, there, there's going to be red herrings. And it's also nice from time to time to shock, to surprise people. But I don't think that the hints they've planted so far have been obvious enough for the majority of the public to really pick up on. Um, I don't think that they would do as much subtle hints that they did just in order to subvert expectations. So I think they've planted a little hint here and there for, for people who are um, really savvy to pick up on, like um, Halbrand looking at the forge, really trying to get to get there, um, him whispering in, in Farazon's ear. I, I think those hints are still too subtle for, for them to just be red herring hints. If, if you know what I mean. I would be more up for the idea that the whole uh, Meteor Man is Gandalf thing is a red herring because that one was picked up instantly by everybody. A friend of mine who hasn't read the books, she's, she's completely in the, okay, if Meteor Man isn't Gandalf, I'm going to stop watching the show camp. So that one really worked. That one really, you know, sparked imagination. So I could see them misleading us there. But with Halbrand, I feel that the hints they've given were too subtle. And now I've repeated that five times. I'm so sorry. Somebody else take it away now. No, but I, I, th I think you're right. They, the hints there are only things that we would catch as book readers. Exactly. Only, only like lore masters would catch that the forge. I was, I was literally going to say that. Yeah. Um, also, um, if you read the book, the, the men of, of Middle Earth at this time are backward. They're not smart. They're not. No offense. They're not. They're not. You know what Albrand is, who's very crafty and very. The Numenorians literally come and usurp them because they're not. They're not crafty, not smart, they're not savvy. They're they're like in the dark ages. So for Halbrand to be so crafty, so wise, so 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 snake like, you know, he he, he has a silver tongue, and he's definitely some saying he's not. Everything they said, they oh, I, I where'd you get that from? I could I, maybe I got it off of a dead man. When, when he gets attacked in the sea, he's the only one that survives the creature and he doesn't try to help anybody. You know what I'm saying? And then everybody asked, hey, Nubeta, why didn't, did he help Galadriel at that point? Well, we know from the readings that he wants to 
the elves to be around. He doesn't. This is is this not a time when he's trying to destroy the elves? He's mm-hmm. he wants the, the elves at their strength so he can use them. So why wouldn't he rescue the strongest of all the elves? So then he can he can corrupt them. You know what I'm saying? When he goes to Numenor, men is uh, he says I didn't realize you know men when since since when did men like us build cities like this? And he and he's looking. It's it's like Sauron saying. Because Sauron did not know that. So when he does arrive in Numenor, I think they're they're kind of doing a reconnaissance mission of Sauron right now. He's not going to stay there. He's going to go back to the middle and then he's going to know, I need to I need to make that place fall. I need to, this, and, he, and he's going to have insights on how to do that. So he'll happily give himself to Farazhan, who we, we see he planted a seed. Farazhan can trust him because now they know where exactly where Galadriel is. He said that he isn't trying to break out. He's It's just a bunch of things to where I feel like it's Sauron. And even if it's a red herring, um, that's fine too. You know what I'm saying? Because right. Sauron is a shifty person and everything. So I think it's Sauron. And even if people are like, oh, well, there's too many red herrings, then I'm like, well, that's some shit Sauron would do too. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, so have you thinking, well, it can't be because that's too obvious. And then boom, <laughs> it's him. Anyway, that's Sauron. That's that's how he would do it. So um, absolutely, I, I think that Halbrand is Sauron. I think that would lend really well to the story, actually. I think it would make that would it would make a lot of sense, you know, with how he's dealing with things and, and how things are going. If we um I think it would lend itself well. Um, you know what I'm saying? It certainly makes for a very fun mystery for us to try and parse through all the hints. And remember the way that this episode ended with Halbrand. He's out, let out of jail. Either he escaped or Farazan let him out in exchange for the advice. And he's walking freely on the streets of Numenor, um, you know, which is kind of a blink and you miss it moment. But he's out. And whether or not he goes back to the Southlands, I think we got a hint in the trailer in the next episode that he's going to connect, reconnect with Galadriel. And she's going to try and talk him into going. Um, but, uh, you know, he's out roaming the streets, free as a bird. Sounds like something Sauron would accomplish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just want to add just one more argument for the Halbrand is Sauron camp. Um, And I know we've we've touched upon this this earlier as well, but I think it's just the most, it, it makes the most sense from the, just the screenwriting perspective. We we have this whole arc of Galadriel having been hunting Sauron for centuries now. And uh, now she finally, she has, at first she has a little bit of a, you know, love-hate relationship with this guy. And I think we've seen in the trailers that eventually they're going to, you know, buddy up a little bit. They're going to give each other advice, etc. So I think... I know a lot of people say that, okay, that that could also lead nicely into the idea that he's, you know, the future witch king or just one of the Nazgul or whatever. But I think that given how, how much emphasis they put on her actually being hunting Sauron actively, um, disregarding the well-being of her companions, just, you know, pushing forward, pushing forward all the time. And then ultimately, you know, finding herself in close proximity with him, but not recognizing him. I think that's the sort of opportunity that, it would be hard for them to to pass by. I don't see them putting him in her way quite as strongly as they did if they didn't have a sort of really nice arc in mind. So, yeah. One thing I, I'm just going to say that if Halbrand is Sauron, and if that is the case, 
I hope that we get a satisfactory answer as to why he's on that raft in the middle of the ocean. Like that seems like such a contrived random, you know, encounter. Um, and, you know, we could chalk it up to, you know, fate if, if chance of chance you call it, but that, you know, always feels like a little bit of a cheat to, to explain it that way, even though that is a deeply Tolkienian concept, but I hope that they will offer us a satisfying explanation for that sort of meet cute um, mm-hmm. <laughs> because otherwise mm-hmm. it feels kind of random. Strider, you had something. Yeah, so I, I was thinking about that uh, that exact question. So he says that he was. So this is me putting a lot of stuff together. Maybe it doesn't make sense. Uh, maybe somebody can poke a hole in in, in this theory, probably. <laughs> uh, so he says that he was chased away from his country by orcs. Um, I could see Adar perhaps being, uh, you know, doing his own thing. So maybe he is. You know, let, let's say he is, he, I mean, he, he obviously is on the dark side, so to say. So let's say he was somehow converted by Morgoth or whatever. For whatever reason, he is working with, you know, he is leading the orcs. If he chased away Sauron, perhaps because he has this loyalty of orcs, because obviously they show us that he treats them with respect and care and kindness. So I could see uh, orcs they, uh, rather having him as the leader. And then in like a power struggle, I can see Adar um, taking the lead over Sauron. And then that's why perhaps Sauron is chased. If we are going with Halbrand, the Sauron theory, uh, I could see uh, Halbrand being chased away because of Adar. And then maybe he, and then he really wants to, you know, see what else there is in the world. And he, by a chance meeting, you know, or some other twist of fate or whatever, uh, he bumps into Galadriel, kind of secret, like like on chance. He comes to Numenor, and maybe he was indeed surprised to know, because uh, su- surprised to learn about Numenor and all that. Because uh, Numenor, as we already talked about, perhaps uh, it seems that they're not a, this colonial power, so maybe they're not mm-hmm. that known in Middle Earth. So it could be that Sauron doesn't know about Numenor. He comes here, and he's like. Oh my God, this is a pretty big threat, potential threat for me. Okay, let's see what I can do here. And then now he's starting to work his way into Numenor um, because he recognizes them as a threat. Then he goes to the Southlands with them. Perhaps he gains some power over there and then becomes potentially an ally of Numenor for somehow. Like, again, I'm just speculating, trying to piece things together and gains this position of uh, advisor to, for Farazon in some way. I could see them like doing it like this and to circumvent this whole actual lore thing that happened. So he goes, this is how he learns about Numenor. And he's like, okay, this is a very potential threat for me. I need to take them down. And he just now goes to, uh, goes to Southlands, becomes the king of Southlands, and then becomes the ally of Numenor. Farazan puts faith in him because maybe he turns his back on Galadriel at some point and then Farazan likes that. And then they become B- become BFFs, and you know the whole thing happens in a different way. So I don't know what you guys think about this. Well, I'm 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 of the opinion that that Halbrand's going to die at the end of the season, and he's not really going to die, and that gives Sauron license to shift and go somewhere else because Sauron would be named 
uh, it would be one of Sauron's names. It would be like, oh, he disguised himself. We know he disguised himself as Anatar. We would know he disguised himself as as Halbrand if the, if he stayed alive and then switched over. So he's going to die or act like he died and then shift over and then going to focus on the uh, with with the rings and with the elves and then know he has he did his reconnaissance with Numenor he knows he has to deal with them he's going to deal with them finally when Farazan comes and takes him he's like okay now I can I know what I got to do who I got to focus on he's already, he's already got a glimpse of that so I, I'm I'm of that opinion uh, that they're doing that as far as how he got on the raft I think that um um he was you know kind of le- maybe leaving to go do something he was he was leaving the southlands and he already had his maps and the orcs directed and he might have let what was going on uh in mordor happen and then he was going to go somewhere else and he was just you know on the raft to get there and just chance meeting how it always happens in lord of the rings he bumped into galadriel and then they happened to end up in numenor and just like you said oh this place okay i see i got some competition how are we going to deal with them i'll deal with them he puts them on the back burner he goes about what he has to do with the rings, and then story continues the same way that it continues in the books. You know what I'm saying? So, well, the uh, public is certainly persuaded by this Halbrand is Sauron theory. We did a poll, and uh, 61% said Halbrand is Sauron. We also got only 2% Meteor Man and 9% Adar. And 27% said Sadok is Sadok, <laughs> which I think uh, 27% of people are discussing with us. <laughs> My vote as well. The correct but, answer, of course, is uh, Cauron is Sauron. You know, the cow that uh, Arondir milks. <laughs> that theory has been gaining popularity on our Discord, and I wholeheartedly agree. So all the love for Cauron. Cauron. Yeah, Cauron. But it, uh, it is surprising that we only get 9% for... Uh, Adar, because you know, listening mm-hmm. to the the newbie panel, um, you know, Trisha said the show was telling me that Adar is Sauron. You know, maybe they're tricking me because that's how shows work. But you know, until I'm told different, I'm being told that that Adar is Sauron. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm going to go with. In no way picking up on the Halbrand is Sauron theory. So that goes back to what I think, Wiki, mm-hmm. you were talking about, and everyone kind of agreed that the and and newbie, you mentioned that the hints are too subtle for the 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 new viewer it's all just for us we're the ones who see that Halbrand is Sauron no one else is going to get it at least not yet so mm-hmm. I, I I love that we saw that sort of play out in our panel um, I do want to move us on to talk about Elrond and Durin and Disa otherwise I know Varking's about to you know have a, a fit and he'll probably explode because this is a great great episode for that plot line um, and I want to get into it so oh the uh, goblins just... okay yeah <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yo, barking, man. No better talk to you like that, man. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk after. So, after being put off by Disa, who tells a wee lie about Durin's whereabouts, Elrond uses his elven super senses to spy on Disa and Durin's conversation and discover that Durin is working in the old mine beneath the Miramir. Elrond gets into a secret passageway where Durin, when he finds him, accuses Elrond of wanting the contents of the mine for himself. Durin then requires Elrond to take an oath. And he says, Dwarven anger outlives even Elven memory. Break your promise, and the power of this stone will doom you and your kin to sorrow to your last day on this Middle-earth. Or Elrond not only takes the oath, but swears on the memory of his father. Durin then reveals that they have indeed discovered Mithril. Then immediately there is a mind collapse. Uh, Adisa sings a plea to the rocks to release the trapped dwarves that still live. 
Durin then angrily says his father shut down the entire vein and in a fit of rage says he will never speak to his father again. Elrond talks about his father and how he would do anything to have one more conversation with him, even if it was a conversation of judgment, and reminds Durin not to waste the time he has left with his. When Durin goes and talks to his father, they reconcile. But during that conversation, King Durin asks Prince Durin what his intuition tells him about Elrond's assurances that Gil-galad bore no ill will. Prince Durin says that there is something more at work, uh, so he still harbors suspicions. So there's a lot to unpack in the Durin and Elrond scenes and, and you know, talk about whatever you want to talk about. But something that jumped out at me is the way that the friendship between Elrond and Durin is constantly being tested. It's obvious that there's great love between them and that they want to remain friends. But the longstanding enmity between dwarves and elves nonetheless seems to be seeping in constantly. You know, so when Durin sees Elrond in the chamber, he again goes off on him, you know, very, very suspicious. What are you doing here? You know, I you're just here to get the mithril or he doesn't say mithril, but to get what you want it for yourself, which is an issue they already dealt with in the last episode, but it's still there, you know, in Duran's gut. So when he sees Elrond, that suspicion bears its ugly head again. Um, and, you know, they get over it. But uh, again, when the Durans talk and King Doran says, what does your heart tell you? Prince Doran's still like, there's something more at work. He still has suspicions. So I, the question I want to ask is, where do you think is this relationship is headed? Are they just BFFs? Are they going to be, are they all good? Or are we going to see more of this? Will they, won't they? You know, they're angry at each other. They reconcile. Um, and specifically, what will happen with the oath? Is Elrond going to break this oath? I have a, I have a, I don't, I have an opinion, but will he break the oath or is he going to stand by it? Barking, obviously we're starting with you. Okay. Well, I just want to mention again that earlier I had mentioned, you know, hope being a major theme in the episode, but also with Tolkien in general and all throughout the episode, you see that hope you have dirt, you have uh, Elrond and Disa who are sort of lying to each other and they're trying to like investigate what's going on. And you think, okay, is there about to be a rift between them here? But then instead of it having that dark turn, they're able to make up later where Elrond and Disa sort of explain, like, I know why you were lying. I'm not mad about it because it was for my friend, your husband. So like, I get it. You have Durin thinking he's catching Elrond. He's like, ah, I knew you were stalking me. And, and they have that moment great before they swear on the rock and, you know, swear an oath that nobody ever, nobody ever breaks oaths in Tolkien ever. So I'm sure it's going to end well. <laughs> but they're able to, you know, get past that suspicion. It's like they they meet with being suspicious of each other and looking for flaws almost, maybe because they've been gone for so long uh, to each other. But they that hope shines through and then they're eventually able to repair the friendship. Even later when Durin is screaming to the sky, well, actually before that you get the, the rocks collapsing, the mines and the four dwarves could be dead. Maybe they're not dead. Maybe in another show in another universe, all the dwarves die or at least some of them die. But here in this show with hope for the dwarves, all four end up surviving that hope that they're going to be okay. Disa mm -hmm. sings to the rock. She's calling upon the gods. Like, please save these dwarves. And they answer. And they come through. And at the end, Durin's so mad about being told he can't continue to mine the mithril. He's like, I'm never going to talk to that old goat again. <laughs> Elrond has that conversation with him. And then the two Durins get to talk. And that hope that they'll be able to repair this relationship, this father-son 
relationship and they're able to do that and understand each other. And you have that moment where they kind of connect the crown of being king of the dwarves where they're at to the reincarnation aspect of what the dwarves had, where he was saying, you know, if our people say that whoever wears the crown, you have the voices and the messages and the thoughts of the forebearers rush into them, but you don't need to wait for that because I'm here now, even in anger, I'm here for you. And we can talk about this stuff. I just feel like there is so much emotion with the dwarves. We've only seen them in bits of two episodes, but it has been like a 10 out of 10 for me with the emotions and the themes of Tolkien, how they've done them. As far as where this goes, dwarves and elves are not the same. Dwarves keep their oaths. Elrond, unfortunately for him, he's not a dwarf. He's an elf. And you know what elves do? Durin called it when they had met previously. Sooner or later, it's going to be their thumbs in their eyes. And uh, you, when we get to Linden, where Elrond has invited Durin to go now, and we get to that dinner scene, I'm sure it is going to be a ton of elves around the table rallying to just have more people coming at Durin to try to like give us whatever you got. We want it all. We want it now. Because we're elves. And that's just <laughs> what elves do. Can we mute this guy or? I hope, I hope he gets punished like no other. Maybe his family will suffer later. I don't know. I didn't read the books. I'm just saying maybe later. <laughs> okay. I have to go next. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's, I, just, that's <laughs> just the way it is. Uh, I find but it Let me really... get my popcorn. <laughs> I, I find it really rich how Barking is preaching about how the elves might hypothetically turn out to be. Whereas in this episode, we've seen the dwarves be deceiving, lying, and then at the same time, suspicious. I, you know, clearly, Elrond was being the bigger man, no pun intended, in this episode. He he was completely understanding of the situation. He... He, he 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 kept being generous even despite the fact that his one of his best friends was clearly lying to his face he was like it's okay dude i understand so you know like it's nice to theorize about the elves being all assholeish in the <laughs> in the future episodes i mean clearly this episode showed us just what the dwarves are um, and I just want to, I also want to refer to, I, I already mentioned that on our, on our Twitter talks um, the other day. I know this is something that a lot of people really, really liked, uh, the little conversation that Elrond has with Durin when Durin's pissed off. And this time I'm going to be on, on, perhaps not on Durin's side, but I'm going to criticize Elrond. I thought that was actually quite a. Um, I, I really didn't like that conversation. I like the uh, the references we got to Erendil, and I like that we got to hear a little bit about Elrond's, you know, his his own personal conflict and and you know his struggle and everything. Uh, but I think it's it's not such a great thing when your friend is having a. a a situation with their parent i don't think it's such a nice nice or mature thing to be like well you know you're lucky you have one i think that's literally the lamest thing you can do yeah of course he's lucky to have one but that doesn't mean the 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 relationship isn't being very difficult at the moment i mean at least offer your friend some some pointers on how to deal with it not just say you know well at least you have a dad so that didn't impress me at all. Um, 
Yeah, and I also just want to say that I absolutely didn't catch that on my first watch watch through. And in my defense, it was six o'clock in the morning. Um, but I really, really liked how they incorporated the, um, you know, the password to get into the chamber. Uh, it, when you when you rewatch it, it's a little bit on the nose because Disa does say a couple of times, you know, Gerda, I swear, you know, I'm going <laughs> to. And obviously you have to think, OK, something's clearly happening here. I didn't pick up on it the first time through on my rewatch. I really like that part. So that was nicely done. And yeah, of course, the elves, the elves rock, the elves are, uh, you know, absolutely superior. The dwarves are scum and that's just the way it is. Okay, continue. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I know everybody's going to go, but just to go back and, and point out how, how shady the elves are being, they're being shady even to each other. Kella Brimbor and Elrond, their moment with each other where he's like, ah, I, things are going well, but I don't, oh, I, I don't want to say it. And it gets like, no, say it. What is it? And he's like, oh, no, no, no. He's your friend. And he's like, oh, darn. What'd he do? And he's like, I think he's hiding something from me. And Keller Brimbor, I don't remember the exact quote, but when he's he's speaking of something in it, he's like, it's awfully curious. And it's almost like a nod to Ian Holm in previous movies has like the same line as he's delivering when he's like, it, it seems kind of like he's already been influenced by Anatar already and he needs things to happen in a certain way. Um, but yeah, I mean, other people can talk now about that. I just wanted to point out that the elves were being shadier continually. I, I might, I might say this at the risk of making a new enemy, but I'm, I'm inclined to agree with Varkin here and, and completely oh disagree with you. I'm very sorry, but the elves are actually the ones being shady. So if we know anything about the dwarves, they play everything close to the vest. We don't even know their real names. This is all within their character. And it's not them being shady. They just, that's just how they are. And Elrond would know this. And Elrond's being deceptive because he has motives. He's not telling his friend the true motives. He's he's masking it as friendship. You know what I'm saying? And he's he's spying on them, trying to see if he can get the information. And he's definitely going to let Keller Grimble know about the Mithril. So that's scumbag <laughs> stuff in the first place. Um, the reason why I think they're touching upon Elrond and uh, Durin's relationship so much is from what we know. So we know that when uh, Aragion falls and uh, Gilgalad sends Elrond's troops, you know, the dwarves come to help Elrond's forces or Gilgalad's forces led by Elrond. They come and, and I think they're establishing their friendship there, so it all makes sense, you know, with that. We all know that Kelebrimbo and Narvi, if they do Narvi, which if they don't, I'm going to stop watching the show, <laughs> um, are going to be the best of friends. But we also want to layer that with we, wh why would they put themselves on the line, um, you know, the elves and the dwarves, you know, to help each other. Um, but I completely gotta say i disagree again i also loved that he said um you know you you that i thought that was genuine advice him saying hey you know if i could get the chance to speak to my father again you know what i'm saying like that is real genuine advice because people in anger can say stuff about their parents and then you know think it's okay because they're going to see him the next day but if that ever gets snatched away from them that's something that they regret for the rest of their lives so he's telling them the truth you know what i'm saying like hey i didn't i don't i don't get to see my father ever again why you have your father here listen to him, you know what I'm saying? Or, or, or at least try to mend your relationship. I, th I think that's very real. It's coming from a real place. It's not, you know, so I, I disagree again there. And <laughs> I could bring up a host of situations where the elves treat the dwarves bad, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to compound an issue with you <laughs> and Barking. So I'm going to let that slide. But um, 
I absolutely loved it. Just like you said, I, I agree with the door, with the, the knocking on the door. That's right in, I think that's right on time with the dwarves and then what you read from the hobbits, the, the wolf doors are all, always invisible. It, you know, even from the Lord of the Rings when you, you know, with the doors are dooring. And then, you know, at the same thing with Erebor with the secret door. Um, it's just, just encapsulating that again. It's just, it's so awesome to see that. Um, um, find actually finding the mithril, like that is awesome. It it sets up everything of how Moria is going to get their wealth. Because right now they're great, they're fine, but we know that they're going to even become even better, and then there's going to be a vast trade route with uh, them and uh, uh, Radion, and then they're going to just become really powerful and stuff like that. So um, I thought it was I was thought it was funny that they were di digging under the silver load. I thought that was funny. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I thought that was that was a little funny. But um, I don't know if anybody else picked up on it. I was the like, mirror, mirror. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yep, the mirror, mirror, yep. Yeah. It's, it's very far west, uh, uh, east. I yeah. thought for it, but um, it was. I thought it was really cool. I think they're doing a good job. Um, and the, and the, as far as the tension goes with the dwarves and the elves, it's always there. The elves never forget what happened in Doriath. They never forget what happened with Tingle. And even though when they're trying to be friends, I think they just, there's always a distrust there. And it says in the Silmarillion, they, just like with the men of the Easterlings, um, it's, they, the elves never forget it. And we know the dwarves never forget it. We know that. So there's always distrust there. Dredder, do you want to get in the middle of this slugfest? Just before uh, we move on, I'm sorry. <laughs> just before we move on, a moment of justice. We have these two traders here. But on our YouTube chat, however, we pose the question, <laughs> Team Elrond or Team Durin? And Team Elrond is winning with 62%. It's not closed Strider. yet. There's still that's, time. That's, still that's time. only because he's the more prevalent Who's... character throughout the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> we, we don't even really touch upon the Durin the third or in definitely not Durin the fourth. So I, that's not a really a fair question. Nobody's Elrond interested is... in them. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Hey, I'm, I'm Team Disa, all right? That's where my life is <laughs> So I will, I will gladly step into this uh, slugfest, as Mike properly <laughs> described it. And I will, I will uh, play Aragorn's role uh, from the Fellowship of the Rings. And I'll say that uh, both sides messed up things badly several times. So, you know, it, it depends on how, how far back you want to go. You know, what's older, the chicken or the egg, you know? Like uh, in dwar dwarves are very stubborn and they can, they, they can be very nasty to deal with. But then on the other hand, when dwarves, dwarves and elves meet in, in the first age, elves are, not, uh, elves are definitely on a high horse uh, from the start. And it's only one, when one of, the, one of Fanor's sons that actually starts treating them with respect. And then we, of course, have the whole thing with Finrod and... The friendship of dwarves, but anyway, um, I liked. I, I I love like for me the best. My favorite duo so far is indeed Elrond and Elrond and the Durin. Uh, they are really interesting, and Disa is a nice uh, nice addition to to that story. Um, yeah, I, I like what they're doing there, but also it was really cool to see this dynamic because we we could go as Warking said we we could go with this cliche. You know, there's like this. Because this uh, lies to Elrond, he can make the scene or something. But no, he's playing it like a normal person, and he's like, "Okay, I understand. You did this for your husband, and of course, you're gonna keep your, you know, it's it's state secrets basically. And no matter how big of a friend he is, 
um, she's doing what she's supposed to do. But then again, again, we have Elrond um, being wise enough to realize what's happening and just don't make a big deal out of it. I like that we saw, um, first of all, we saw Elrond's quick wits uh, with uh, taking the nursery rhyme and just using it as the password and just figuring that thing out. But it's also really cool to see some of the magic of the elves with his super hearing and all that. I think that was a pretty cool scene to to experience because we don't have a lot of that. The, mo- the best we've seen so far is Legolas, what do your elf I see? And, uh, you know, all the crazy stunts that Legolas pulls off, in, especially in The Hobbit. So I think it was pretty cool to see um, this. And I'm also hoping, I saw this, I said this way too many times, um, I saw um, the question, uh, a lot of people ask is when we're going to see some magic from Galadriel, because so far we haven't seen a lot. We haven't seen anything, basically. Like She figures out that thing at the intro and at like the start of the first episode. He, she figures out those things in uh, the fortress in Fordwight. But we didn't see a lot of elvish magic so far. So this was really cool. And I hope we get to see more of this. Um, regarding the storyline itself, itself, I think that hopefully Elrond will not cross, Elrond will not break the oath because, as people have said, uh, oaths are really huge in Tolkien's works, and breaking an oath is really not a good idea, especially a big one such as that. Uh, so I don't think Elrond will break it. And I, what, I, what I think will happen is that Celebrimbor will just hit it off with Durin. And perhaps Durin will not go alone. Perhaps a certain dwarf named Narvi may end up going with him. I don't think so, but perhaps that will that's something that may happen. Uh, hey, he may... Yeah? Do you think it's possible that you, you think... Durin and and Celebrimbor might just hit it off, uh, mm-hmm. and he tells him, or or te- like maybe he's like, "Hey, I gave Elrond some of this, you know, check it out." Or do you think it's possible that if if Anatar has already influenced Celebrimbor, that maybe while Elrond comes back to Linden, maybe he's sleeping, maybe he leaves it out or something, and Celebrimbor comes to visit him to ask him a question, maybe he sees it laying on a table or out somewhere, and he kind of snatches it realizing that I've never seen this before, what is this? And then it gets around the oath-breaking portion of it, and we can continue to have Durin and Elrond be the bromance buddy cop story that everybody's enjoying right now. Yeah, exactly. I think that that's exactly, that, that's exactly what's going to happen. Perhaps not that specific uh, type of, of um, circumstance, but I think that something will happen that will circumvent the oath and not break the bromance. Uh, so, be, because we will, we have to see the the, fr- the famous friendship of the dwarves and elves of uh, of the dwarves of Kazadum and elves of Eregion. So I don't think there's going to be like a huge scandal regarding Mithril. There may be some tensions or something, but I think it, it it will have to just sort out on its own in a way. And pretty soon, I think, like uh, before the end of the season. So I, I think you're right. Maybe not in that exact way. Of course, that's one of the possibilities. But I pretty sure something like that will happen and uh, i think there's a scene one of the shorts or trailers or however we want to call them where calabrimbo just like he does like the cheers move towards durin or at least we assume it's towards him 
So I think that's how it's going to play out. I think there may be some tensions, something will happen there, but I think it will be resolved very quickly and then they will just continue and they will just deepen their cooperation. Yeah, I think that the way that they have portrayed their friendship, it's sort of defined by them being at odds. I mean, the introduction to these characters is them being mad at each other. We're introduced to them as characters when they get in a fight, right? And I think that's going to kind of characterize their relationship. They're going to be pissed at each other. Then they'll reconcile. They're going to be pissed at each other. They're going to reconcile. I think there's going to be a lot of that as the seasons go on. And I think sort of projecting outwards, we know that a very, very significant moment for Elrond and the dwarves is in the sack of Oregion by Sauron. Elrond's forces, they kind of get up against it um, and they're basically toast until the dwarves issue forth from Khazad-dûm. And the dwarves had previously, they'd shut their doors. They're like, we're, we're having no part in this war. But then they open their doors to basically save Elrond. I think that is going to be kind of like the peak of their friendship. And I think I think that the, the closing of the doors of Khazad-dûm and the opening of the doors to save Elrond, those are, those are going to be tied directly to Durin's relationship with Elrond. We're going to experience those... Um, uh, Hey, sort hey of Mike, yeah. Uh, you were breaking up a little bit there. Could you say what, what did the dwarves do for Elrond? What did he do? <laughs> Could you repeat that? They say one more game. Elrond. Yeah, they <laughs> saved him. They saved him. And I think I mean, we're gonna experience that through their relationship. I think that the closing of the doors, you know, the elves are gonna be asking for their help, and the dwarves are just like, no, I think that's gonna be a part of like related to them having a fight basically and when the doors open and prince duran you know issues forth sort of unlooked for to save his old buddy elrond that's going to be like a a huge reconciliation that's going to be an emotional moment for us as fans and we're going to experience that like through the lens of their relationship so i think that they're using their relationship to sort of track what happens between the elves and dwarves generally i'm kind of excited to see that play out yeah, and also it's really going to be a surprise because absolutely nobody, and I mean nobody is going to expect the dwarves to act in any sort of honorable way. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's a nice plot twist right there. But I also <laughs> wanted to say that I kind of really... Um, <laughs> I, I, I really expect when you present a sort of solemn oath, especially when it's between two characters that do potentially have a sort of more fiery relationship... I don't think they would make Elrond swear an oath unless there would be some plan to have him break it further down the line. I don't think he'll do it out of out of you know spite or out of any sort of evil impulse. I think the situation is going to force him to 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 do it to disclose this sort of information. Uh, but I do think the way they 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 built it up, it does seem likely, in my opinion, that Elrond is in fact gonna um, spill the beans, and I'm I'm curious if they're gonna tie this together with his eventual fate. You know, he does, because because uh, Durin, I think he specifically says that he's gonna be suffering for as long as he's in Middle Earth. And that was something that, you know, we as readers know, yes, that's absolutely going to happen. He's going to suffer the loss of his wife. I mean, you know, her departure. Um, eventually, he's going to lose Arwen as well. So I wonder if they're planning on trying to explain that with this one little mistake he made. Because, you know, everybody knows that betraying the dwarves, that's not that's not any sort of substantial mistake. I mean, everybody <laughs> would do it. Um, but yeah, I wonder if they're going to tie it all together. And I, I'm not sure I like it, to be honest. Uh, 
Hey, Barking, um, who made the sword that cut the ring from Sauron's hand? <laughs> oh, can can any of you lore nerds help help me out with that? Tell Carter the dwarf that yeah. did it. Who, who made the dragon helm of Dolomen? That uh -huh. I think we might have already seen. Oh my god, who made the knife that cut the silver rule from Morgoth's crown? <laughs> Who's got better beards? <laughs> but I find it really curious how you know they're the, the ones that actually make stuff, but then actual heroes from either the, the men. Or, or the elves actually wield the weapons and actually do the heroic deeds. Yeah. I think there was a saying in, in the Silmarillion. And lifted up the blade at a defense and then it did, it did all the work. Yeah. I think there was this weird saying in the um, near Neathanoriad uh, if but for the dwarves, all would have been withered. I thought that was, yeah. When it was Azagol stabbed uh, Glaurung in the stomach and. And, yeah, and, and made them flee the field and all the other dragons. I saved all the elves. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, there was like one more. dwarven hero or two throughout the oh. whole history. I'll give you that, absolutely. <laughs> I'm just enjoying myself here on my island kingdom of Numenor, chilling or chilling yeah. in Minas Tirith and just like, you know, I'm just going to let these two fight it out. <laughs> Well, I, I think before it gets any uglier than it already has gotten, uh, I think maybe we have time for one more topic if you guys are cool to hang around. Um, we haven't, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we're not going to get to. You know, Theo probably won't talk about him, but I want to talk about Adar, Adar, who we finally see uh, up close and in focus <laughs> in this episode. <laughs> and uh, uh, these are some of the most impactful scenes for me. I really like them. He mercy kills an orc and the, the orc that Erendir had stabbed in a surprisingly tender moment. Um, Adar is pretty clearly revealed to be an elf, but he's scarred and unlovely. His black armor and mail bear familiar looking star emblems. His breastplate has the design of a river on it. He tells Erendir that to cure the lies that infect the world would take the creation of a new world, which only the gods can do, and that he is not a god, at least not yet. Giving us some insight into his plans, perhaps. Adar allows Arandir to leave so that he can deliver a message to the men of the villages, and we later learn that Adar will let them live if they swear fealty to him. So uh, there are a lot of theories about Adar's identity, from Sauron to Ignor to Maeglin to Maglor to Eol. Uh, we actually got a couple of super chats on that point uh, from Bill C. He says, uh, if Adar is a title, could he be Eol, the dark elf who had a great hatred of the Noldor, hated Sunshine, was a great forger of black swords and perhaps was saved by Sauron after being thrown down from Gondolin. And uh, we got another super chat here about Adar. Um, do you think Adar is one... This is from Dwayne William. Do you think Adar is one of the elves who fled before Arome? And this is going way back to you know the, the beginning when the elves first awoke by the Lake of Quivenen. Um, could he be one of the elves that fled before Arome and was ensnared by Melkor? Hence why the orcs call him father. So we get a little bit more information about Adar in this episode. I don't know that there's anything conclusive, but I'm curious what everyone's theories are about his identity. And also, I want to know, do you think he is working for Sauron? Or is he, you know, is he under Sauron's uh, authority? Or is he just doing his own thing right now? Let's start with Nubeta. So <clears throat> I think it's uh, the mercy killing is going to give us the most information. So, uh, you know, uh, it was, Sauron would not mercy kill an orc. He wouldn't give a shit. So no, it's not Sauron. Um, I think the conversation he has with Arondir about the river, 
uh, lets us know that I think he's one of the orcs that was first corrupted. His name in itself, Father. I think that um, he's definitely not Maglin nor Eo, even though the Black Armor is giving, very giving. But um, Eo is definitely dead. It, he he dies. Like we know for 100% fact, he didn't survive that. Um, you know, because they, they would have. They would have said, "Oh, we never found his body in Gondolin," but they they knew he died. If anybody, it was possible. It's Maglin, and I'm not saying it's Maglin. I 100% don't think it's Maglin. But if if you could make an argument for somebody, it would be a, a, an argument for Maglin. For one, Aol never Aol didn't have his black sword. So there's Angler Helen and Anglerell, and and. Ao doesn't have that sword. Maglin has that sword. He was thrown off just like his father. He did get burned, and you know. But you could argue since Gondolin fell, nobody would be there to say whether he actually died or not. So that is a better argument than the old one. Doesn't make any sense for him to be Ao. Um, but also, I don't think that he Maglin would mercy kill an orc. Like he wouldn't be like he's not that that's not his character you know what i'm saying so it, it's just that is the biggest information that we have and, and it leans toward he is one of the orcs that were corrupted in the beginning and he's like one of the elves that were corrupted in the beginning like not maybe not full orc but he's like that was what they were trying to do and that's why the orcs and he understands the orcs and the orcs understand him and that's why they follow him i don't know what the exactly he's looking for that sword for or what he's trying to get out of it but um i think that's the biggest mystery of the show despite people wanting to find out who the stranger is and who sauron is but what the freak does that sword do to where they're searching for it like that that's what i really want to know um, and it also, the sword has Sauron's symbol on it. So Maglin's sword or Eol's sword would not have Sauron's symbol on it. So that would absolutely not be the case. Uh, okay. I the, the, Just the one thing that I want to point out is that you mentioned the, uh, the river that he has on his um, armor, right? Uh, so he's not the only one actually that's the same I, I'm sorry if you already mentioned that but that's the same the same motive that also Gilgalad has on his uh, his plate or something and also Elrond as well so it seems like that's that's a common motive there was a tweet um, that contained all three uh, all three costumes uh, so I suppose that's a common motive that the Noldor Earls are having so I think think it made point us in the direction of this being an actual Noldo. Um, in which case, I saw lots of people speculating, given that he has that one glove, that could he perhaps be, be Maglor? You know, it's um, that would be a nice emotional connection to Elrond, of course. Um, I, I don't like the theory. I would very, 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 very much like Maglor's fate to remain you know, a, a mystery, and um, they can mention it at some point as something that nobody knows what's happened to him. Um, it would be a nice, nice connection to Elrond, but also, on the other hand, I think if Adar is to be an elf that we we're supposed to feel some sort of emotional connection to once we once his identity gets revealed, then I would expect that character who he actually is uh, to be established pretty early on. So I don't see them having Elrond talk about Maglor and his connection to him in episode 7, only to have Adar be revealed as Maglor uh, later in that episode or in the next episode. I see that being a thread going throughout the whole season. Perhaps Elrond mentioning that he 
he had conflicted feelings about him, but he misses him, la 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 la, and then building up to be Maglor. I don't see that being Eol or Maglin at all, because we haven't had any mentions of them whatsoever. We don't even have any characters who would have an immediate connection to that. Of course, you know, I mean, Elrond again, potentially, but I don't see that being the case. I think the most likely, if anything, is that it would be Finrod, uh, given that we had the whole, you know, Galadriel trying to avenge his death, etc., etc., it's in his body. Maybe Sauron, the necromancer, eventually raised him up or whatever. I'm absolutely not a fan of that theory, but I think at this point it's more likely than him being either Maglor or Meglin or whoever else. Sorry, I went a little long on this one. Um, I, I wanted to throw something else out there. As we were talking to Emma Horvath, one of the co-hosts that we had on was James Tauber of the Digital Tolkien Project, and he believes that Adar might be a combination of a few different characters just due to the way that they're trying to move the timeline. I, I see comments in the chat all the time about, shouldn't this be happening later or shouldn't this have already happened? I think when people think timeline compression, they think it's all just getting smushed, but it's still all happening in a chronological order. And I don't think that that's the case with this show. I think there are things that happen later than, you know, you would, or, or things that happen later in the timeline and they're moving them up. And there are things that happen earlier in the timeline and they're moving those things back to try to tell this story the way that they're doing it. Um, I saw a comment and, you know, it just came to me. I didn't see a comment. Uh, somebody said maybe he only wears one glove because it was burned. His hand was burned by a Silmaril. You know, that just came to me. I didn't see that anywhere. That's um, that's all my idea personally. And uh, I like that as well. The other thing I, I think people, I don't know if Kyle will have time to pull it up but in the hall of lore there's a a picture up of elrond elros and a bunch of other folks and there are people on social media twitter reddit everywhere who believe that there is one pale long hair with black hair uh elf in the back of that image and they were wondering maybe that is a dar from way back in the day and I think that that might be a cool little uh, theory to to kind of chew on there. Or, or it's just uh, Middle-Earth's way of showing Elrond and Celebrimbor, if you live too long, eventually elves will find a way to corrupt themselves. And they'll go stabby-stabby on their own people, killing orcs and stuff. And it's just not good. He's just not a good guy. Is he Sauron? No, he's not, because Sauron's supposed to be sexy. And while some people, some people enjoy the scars, studies show... When I read those magazines uh, at work, you open them up, there's like poles that the ladies take in the back. Um, all the facial scars, not, not always a home run. And I, I just, I haven't seen people refer to him as sexy Adar. Strider, do you want to uh, disagree up, and, and call Adar sexy? Uh, sorry, can you repeat? Do you want to disagree with Varking and uh, talk about how sexy Adar is? Oh yeah, sure. I'll, I'll take that. Uh, I uh, all I have to say, I, I always, I was always kind of sad that we didn't see um, more of uh, Benjamin Stark. I think he he looks like a real badass, and I hope that Adar will have some really cool uh, badass moments. Though to be fair, I, I, he is already really cool i really liked the character everything they did with him 
Um, I think Joseph, Joseph Molly, or I'm not sure how to pronounce the last name. Uh, but I think he, I, he, he was one of the like, probably top three characters I was looking forward to going into the show because I really loved Benjamin Stark. I was so excited to see him here. And I think he was amazing. Uh, what, um, what they're doing with him and the orcs and the fact that they call him Adar, which means father. I think that's really cool. Uh, it's an excellent storyline so far. I'm very excited. I think everybody loves orcs so much, like what they're doing with them, the representation, the culture, the way they look like, the way they... Everything about the orcs so far has been amazing. Uh, perhaps the thing that's kind of a bit weird is like their sensitivity to sun seems a bit on a higher level than what it is in the lore. But anyway... So to go back to the question, uh, yeah, Adar is, I can see why people would find him attractive. He is really, uh, he, he's cool. But to go into his identity, um, I like the, I like Maglor theory, the fact that he uh, wears the glove because it was burned by the Silmaril. I think it's pretty cool, but I don't think, I don't think it's actually true. And I would prefer Maglor to just keep on wandering the shores of Middle Earth and singing and like playing his harp. Um, I think he is an original character. If I had to make that, I would say he's an original ca- character, and uh, or or at least not one of the big ones. However, well, one of the bigger characters. However, we did have, and just to be clear, it wasn't a leak, so we never said that this was true. But we did hear um, in our in our group as fellowship of fans. Uh, it was an unconfirmed rumor, but it would make sense from an artist standpoint uh, that uh, he may be one of Galadriel's brothers. However, um, that would be a very big twist regarding the canon, and he would he would either have to be an, a one more, like another brother of um, of Galadriel, or be. Finrod, but that doesn't make sense in so many ways. It doesn't make sense even in the show because he was buried. She went to his, you know, like he, she saw his body and all that. So I don't think that's true. Uh, but again, this is just like an unconfirmed rumor that we heard. It would make sense to give her some like emotional connection to this, but I don't think it is. I, I don't think I don't think he is a he's uh, an original character. But then again, we do have his armor and this references towards him being there in the, like being in Beleriand and him having this uh, water motives on his, and he, his sword is similar. People point out the, what, what, that scene from the prologue where uh, few, so there are several elves lifting their swords and some sort of oath. We speculate that that is the oath of Anor, but uh, they are pointing out one specific elf with black hair that that may be at Adar, so it's a good question. And it's definitely one of the cooler mysteries that we have here. Uh, so, Halbrand is kind of an annoying type of mystery because I'm afraid he'll be Sauron. He seems to be Sauron. But Adar, so far, I really love the mystery that they're doing there. Cool but I don't think Blitz. it's Magler. Cool yep. Blitz in our chat uh, was kind of riffing off the idea uh, about who Adar could be. And we were talking about how maybe his left hand was burned by a Silmaril, and that's why he wears that glove. And that's also the same side of his face that he was burned on or his scarred up. So maybe he was like, you know, 
cuddling the Silmaril <laughs> and hand burn at the same time. And Kyle, who's amazing, did pull up that picture of like the the art where it had Elros and Elrond and everybody together. And on the to me, the back right, there's like a female elf, and then there's the dark haired, uh, long black haired, pale skinned elf there, and he's also turned to the camera where you can only see the right side of his face, not his left. I don't know what that means, but you know, information. Do what you want. That's fa- that's fascinating. I did not. I actually do remember looking at that painting and wondering who that sickly looking character is, but I did not make the connection that it would could potentially be Adar. But now I am really liking that idea. Mm. Nonetheless, I I do not. I'm going to take a um, a line out of Newbetta's book, and I'm going to say it doesn't matter who he is. It just matters what he tells us, you know, narrative. Why he is. Yeah. (laughs) doesn't matter who he is. It matters why he is. Nobody asks how he is. (laughs) I do all the time. I mean, I I gotta say, I was really impressed with the door. Like, like we, we said earlier, I mean, he showed compassion for the orcs. Um, He was even him releasing Arondir. I found it a little bit peculiar, given that Arondir was one of the elves who, put up the you know put up a really good fight and then he just goes and releases him um so yeah i think he's a he seems to be quite a nuanced villain and you know maybe he's just tired of killing more elves and if the others would have just done the work that they were you know chained up to do they would all still be alive today and he would be building (laughs) a place for the elves, the orcs, the Southlanders to all just live together in harmony. Without Adar, the dwarves. Middle right? Earth Community Center. Unfortunately, <laughs> when you're dealing with elves, there's a lot of ego and it's hard for them to kind of come together like that in community. It's true. Mm-hmm. Well, on, on that note, I I don't want to let the things get too much farther <laughs> off the rails with this uh, elf dwarf talk. Um, I think this has been a great panel. And uh, before we close it up, I know I want to throw it to Strider because there have been a lot of Fellowship of Fans leaks that have been con- confirmed in these episodes. And uh, I wanted to kind of run through that kind of quickly. Uh, yeah, thank you, Mike. Uh, so, yeah, what, what uh, Fellowship of Fans has been doing in the months and basically like a year or even more the, before the show premiered, uh, for a long time, our our group was one of the very few sources of actual new info and like kind of keeping up the hype about the show. So I would just quickly uh, grow, go through a list of um, leaks that we had that were confirmed that we saw here in the show. Uh, so I'll just quickly go to the list. Uh, Farazon's speech to to like a crowd um, talking about elves taking jobs. Uh, Kamen, uh, falling in love or flirting with Iarian. Uh, Kamen being the son of Farazon. Dwarven, Dwarven mind, uh, mineshaft crash. Disa singing. Celebrimbor not being that important until episode 4. So, so far, he really wasn't a prominent character, but uh, probably um, from Linden onwards he will be. Uh, downfall of Numenor as a vision. Muriel blessing babies. Farazon having a scene with his understudy outside of a tavern in a market. So um, this uh, was, of course, Kemen 
in the episode, but we wasn't we weren't uh, completely sure who was this specific character Farazon was talking with. Uh, Galadriel getting locked up. Uh, everyone's favorite scene of Galadriel fighting off five Numenorean guards and escaping. Um, Numenor fleet going to Middle Earth. Numenor haven't. Um, Numenor not having a huge naval uh, force or like having a huge army at the point where the story picks up. Isildur, alongside his friends, will volunteer to join the army. Adar being a twisted and corrupted uh, elf, who will serve as a villain of the first season. Uh, and yeah, him being an elf. Uh, so yeah, that's a lot of things that were confirmed basically just in this episode. And we had a lot of these things uh, also in the previous episodes. So I just wanted, we, we just wanted to point this out and, you know, just to show that we did uh, an honest work. So thank yeah, you, Mike. Your track for, record is, yeah. is amazing. I mean, uh, I, I can you think of any that did not pan out? Not, not the third shade, but uh, you honestly, seem to be not a thousand, right? Like we, we, the Fellowship of Fans really had so many leaks, and uh, the one I was hoping is not going to be true was Meteor Man. That was one of the craziest things we we leaked for obvious reasons because it's very lore breaking, like in. So for someone to crash into middle to middle earth in a, in a meteor it's not a lore thing and i was hoping that one will not come true kind of but it did and uh there was so many things and uh, actually kyle uh, lahiti and myself uh and of course before me it was fellowship in our second age show we we did uh episode breakdowns for these leaks and we had 40 episodes for as uh, like a prelude to the first season of the show and uh, hopefully we will continue doing that in the time between first and second season but yeah so far i think we had a really good track record really good track record and i would just say and this is something you, you all did a really good job of, of saying anytime there was a really wild leak that sounded bizarre like meteor man like galadriel fighting a million people did a good job of saying like look we don't have the context we don't know how this is going to work out let's not freak out too much about it and i think that's good advice because a lot of like for example that we saw the scene with galadriel fighting a few guards it was not i think what some people were afraid it would be like some you know like crazy parkour super action packed you know ridiculous scene it, it worked like 100 percent for me i thought that scene worked great and even meteor man i'm really enjoying you know things are working uh so good job on your leaks good job on delivering them in a way that that does <laughs> prevented people from freaking out too much over the weird ones um and allowed them to enjoy the show when it actually came out yeah it was so much fun doing that i mean kyle and lakitia probably may may, may want to say something about that but it was seriously such a joy and that was actually my introduction to the channel as stepping in uh instead of fellowship in episode 21 i guess or some, somewhere around number 20 and you know just to get to comment on all of this with Kyle and Lakitia and all the guests that we had. We had some amazing guests and like some of our own like Barking, but also like Kai, who is the greatest uh, talking YouTuber in Spanish. We had so many great guests and it was really a fun experience. So I think we'll probably be doing the same thing for season two. I just want to say that I think it's really important to to realize, and this is something that I think we've been trying to say all along, is that you know, out of context, leaks may sound pretty out there, pretty crazy. Um, I mean, even in context, some of the leaks are <laughs> still pretty out there. Uh, but Meteor uh, Man. <laughs> <laughs> but even, even Meteor Man, I think the way it was done. 
it's working so far. Yeah. It, it could it could have been so much worse, and I was afraid it was going to be so much worse. Uh, so I think it's always really important to know that yeah, we obviously we in, interpret uh, the leaks as best we, we we can given the the context that we have which is very very little um so yeah it's you know it's it's really nice to not freak out because it may it may turn out turn out well in the end so yeah, yeah i just want to point out something one thing so uh, that we are clear on this because maybe somebody misheard i said uh, about uh adar potentially being uh, Gladius' brother. We never said that as a leak. We just said that we heard this as an unconfirmed rumor. So that wasn't a leak. It was also stated as that in our tweet, an unconfirmed rumor. So just to be clear, to avoid potential misunderstandings with anyone. But yeah, context absolutely matters for all the leaks that we had. We were always pushing this narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to thank everybody. I think that'll wrap it up for us. As always, a great panel. Nubeta, it was fantastic to meet you. Um, and great to meet you guys. So fun chatting awesome. with you. Thanks for joining us and, and sticking around for so long. I know these things go long, but you know when you're talking Tolkien, you lose track of time. And fun, man. Nothing better. Thank you, guys. Absolute pleasure. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming. This was amazing. Yeah, was Strider, great. Lakitia, Varking. Varking and Lakitia, thank you for, uh, you know, keeping the violence to a minimum today <laughs> i just want to say real quick um i i appreciate you guys uh community as a whole the people who have stuck around in the comments between streams folks who hang around between technical difficulties like it's really cool that we've kind of grown this community as a whole to this point where we have this very strong core audience who remains in the chat week after week. They're respectful. They're knowledgeable. People love interacting with you guys. I love interacting with you guys, but also you folks behind the scenes, like Mike, Kyle, for sure, Lakithia, Strider, putting stuff like this together, getting people on, setting up the streams. It's a lot more work than people probably realize. And y'all have been doing it week in and week out consistently for a very long time now. And the reason the brand is where it is now is because of you folks carrying it. And, you know, you don't always get to thank you for all the work that you guys are putting in. Like Mike, the panel earlier, Jen, the like the newbie panel. I love tuning into that. I, I get such a kick out of seeing the reaction of folks who aren't well-versed in the lore just as much as I do. Like having Nubeta on who I feel like dude knows everything, especially the stuff about the elves and the dwarves. But I appreciate you guys tremendously for having me on and always making it a fun, collectively good time. And uh, just if you guys think the work goes unnoticed, know that it doesn't. And I appreciate it. Well, I'm going to send that right back at you, Varking. You know, big kudos goes to you for, you know, creating and maintaining a really healthy community on Reddit. I mean, really the only one that is as healthy as it is um, and that, you know, that's in large part your doing and your diligence and, uh, I'm so thankful that that community is out there and they have a good place to go, a safe place to go to chat about Tolkien and, and not be hated on. Um, so thank you, Varking. I mean, you're really uh, kind of emerging as a leader in this uh, fan community. So big tip. Of the man. Yep. There's some stuff you still need. Walking to is a dwarf, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> everyone's, everyone's got flaws, right? Yeah. But, uh, and I'm talking, I'm talking about you, Lakitia, not, not Varking. <laughs> wow! Help, help lover. <laughs> wow! I'll 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 need some ice for that burn. That's for sure. 
Galadriel can right. provide some forward weight and all I that. Thought, I thought we were friends, you know, I, I really did. Now I don't anymore. Oh, oh well, we're, we're friends. That's what my friendship sure. looks like. Sometimes the harsh truths, you know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we have got uh, a giveaway that we want to end this stream on. Uh, we have a very clear winner of the beautiful piece by uh, Matej Kedil. And that goes to Bill C. No surprise. You've been contributing throughout the stream. Lots of super chats. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Really appreciate you. And, uh, you know, reach out to us uh, on, on Twitter or you can email uh, Fellowship Fans and we'll connect you with Matej and, and make sure that you get that that print. So congratulations. I th just just a quick uh, um, I, th I think he's he's from Czech Republic so I think I, I may get it wrong as well but I, I think it's Matej Chadil something like that thank you for that correction I, I wasn't sure <laughs> I, I'm not sure but I think that might be in the in the ballpark he does amazing work um, yeah. like Mike said please everybody check him out on Twitter he's one of my absolute favorites so amazing stuff and a reminder if you didn't catch it when I said it before he's offering a discount code so if you go to his store fellowship at checkout all caps fellowship you'll get 10% off uh, your order of any prints so that now's a good time to patronize these Tolkien artists especially Matej Kedil I probably butchered it again <laughs> um well anything else guys I think I think we can call that a show and aha uh -huh, and just yeah just before just before we wrap up, clearly uh, the Elf team won on in the uh, YouTube poll as well. I just need to rub it in once more. So that's yeah, that's it. Bye. You know that that vote hasn't been certified. We're calling for a recount. Whose <laughs> side are you even on, Mike? <laughs> this is wow. Let's just wrap it up now. Walking <laughs> is Walking is killing it with his campaign. Like he is absolutely <laughs> nailing it. Like he's converting so many people. I'm I don't so know. Low. Okay, just take, take us out, Kyle.